when it comes to action. You may have to kill him. Just tell me where he is. And romance. You know what I'd like? Can't imagine. A moonlight swim. It always comes back to Bond. Roger Moore as 007 does it all for your eyes only. From United Artists, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Hello and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. This week, James Bond has been trying to decide whether to cut his own hair or not. (laughs) 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 I would be FaceTiming Moneypenny for assistance. Um, So I'm your feeling host, James Page from MI6. And we've got a little special guest this week because um, Ben finished his contract for the watch-alongs and um, negotiations didn't go well. He asked for too much money. because he asked for some money. So um, <laughs> we are, yeah, we furloughed him. So um, in his place, um, the James Brolin of the Watch Alongs is Mark O'Connell. Hello, I'm more the Pamela Sailor, I think, to be honest. So we'll let, we'll let that one reach the back of the room. But um, yes, hello everyone. Hi. So slight change to the lineup this week. So it's Bill, David, Kelvin, Lisa, and Mark. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Uh, I'm Bill Koenig, and uh, I like to hear myself talk, and I run a blog <laughs> called The Spike. <laughs> uh, David Lee here. I'm not sure if it's my turn to jump in, but um, I run the James Bond Dossier, and it's good to talk to you, Bill. <laughs> and this is Calvin Dyson, and I run the Calvin Dyson YouTube channel talking about all things Bond, films, books, games, uh, and it's also very nice talking to you, Bill. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mark O'Connell. Hi, Bill. Um, I'm a writer, author, uh, bullet catcher, pop culture pundit, pirate, and the rest of it. And I'm Lisa Funnel, Dr. Lisa Funnel. I'm an associate professor at the University of Oklahoma. I'm the author of The Geographies, Genders, and Geopolitics of James Bond and editor of For His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond. Awesome. So we put the vote out to the to the public last week, and it was between Golden Gun, Few Eyes Only, You Only Have Twice, Doctor Pussy, and Lisa's Few Eyes Only one with thirty three point six percent of the audience. Boom. Um, wow. Yes. So oh, um, I've got the wrong film lined up. I thought it was going to be Golden Gun. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you do that one, and we'll do this one and see what happens. <laughs> I've got Rocky too. I've got it also wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, if you at home can queue up your copy of Furious Only to just when Leo appears, and Lisa, you know the rules that we make up as we go, um, because it's your film this week. You get to do the roar. Yeah. And um, Bill, you wanted just to throw something in before we get going. I just wanted to say this was the last Bond film that was released by United Artists before it was acquired by MGM. The deal had actually been announced, but it hadn't closed yet. So when it came out, first came out in theaters, you had this very puny United Artists logo because Transamerica, which was selling it, stripped off its logo. So all you had, at least when I went to see it, was just United Artists white letters against a black screen. It was so sad. but. At least it wasn't in Comic Sans. And end of an era, because of course, 20 years earlier, United Artists had cut the deal with Broccoli and Saltzman to start the series. So, uh, so in that sense, it's kind of a historic film. 
all and I this want is the see. film this also saved United Artists from bankruptcy because of Heaven's Gate right they lost 40 million on Heaven's Gate and this brought in 195 and it kept them going enough to be bought by MGM so yeah mm. yes. alright um, everybody ready we're going to yep. say 3, 2, 1 alright 3, 2, 1 play Rawr. <laughs> it's kind of like two short roars, I think. I was channeling my inner scar from The Lion King right there. Understood. <laughs> I haven't seen this in so long. I'm very excited. This is come this is going to be a very fresh take from me. Look at those flares. They're a semaphore message of their own, I think, those flares. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched it uh, not that long ago, actually. Mm. I'm with you, Lisa. I, I very seldom go back to this one. So this is the first time I'm watching it in probably well over a year. Well, uh, we're about to see uh, uh, Tracy's headstone, but here's, but, but here's the thing. It's like, okay, Tracy was five years younger than the actress who portrayed her. Um, right. I don't know why, but that's it. So it is. And that gravestone was in Washington, or one version of it was at the, um, the Spy Museum there. That was one of the pieces they had. So it's, uh, it got stolen from the church. It's interesting so that they do try to connect Roger Moore. Like, this is probably the first time they make an overt, like, there's no kind of doubting that, okay, Roger's Bond is the same as George Lazenby's Bond. They were both married to the same woman. There um, was a passing reference in The Spy Who Loved Me, but this is yes. much more overt, mm -hmm. obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And then also with him going on to battle Blofeld, as we'll see in a few minutes. And I did listen to John Glenn's audio commentary for this not that long ago. And um, he seemed to think of this as being a direct sequel to Majesty's Secret Service. So when we see right. Blofeld, he has a neck brace on, as he does at the end of Majesty's Secret Service. So I don't know if John oh. Glenn just didn't like well, Diamonds Are Forever. Well, <laughs> but in the, script, in the script, it got cut out. There, you know, the, the sort of Blofeld, however you want to refer to him, mentions that this is the 10th anniversary of their last encounter, which would be right. Diamonds Are Forever. Ah. Now that's that's not in the film, but it is in the Marvel Comics adaptation yep. of the film. Hmm. Interesting. And yeah. this that intro was written um, for a new actor to take the role, right? So that was how they were going to link him in, yeah. right? Continuing the tradition that started with Doctor No, and then again in uh, Majesties of where you don't see the guy's face right away, the new yeah. Bond's face right away, and, uh, and it's ooh. staged as if that were the case here. I, I was just going to say, yeah. we've all got to hope that uh, James doesn't have a button that does that to the, our headphones. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, I and I believe he's not credited. I believe the voice of Blofeld, I'm going to call him Blofeld, is Robert Rietti yeah. who dubbed uh, Largo because in one of the trailers, it's a different guy dubbed. It is a different guy, yeah. With. yeah. Well, Robert Rietti, uh, he was yeah. like the Nicky Van Brazil, wasn't he? I mean, he did, I was watching uh, Doctor Who the, the other night and I, or some, something, was it Doctor Who? And he, his voice was there again, I, you know. Oh yeah, he was one of the uh, generals at the beginning, early on when Bond first uh, reaches Jamaica. Yeah. I thought and that's, he was that's also, Robert uh, Rietti. And he was also Tiger Tanaka and You Only Live Twice. Yes. And finally got to talk on film. Well, he did talk on film, but he was, uh, I think he uh, is one of the priests in The Omen or The Omen 2. He finally gets some screen time, which oddly he's then uh, dubbed by Telly Savalas. 
<laughs> so here we, here we are in Beckton Gasworks, which, if you don't recognise it, was also Vietnam, Vietnam in Full Metal Jacket. And the Olympic oh, site. Yeah. Are we above the Excel Centre here? I don't know. Is it my East, yeah. East London geography is not great? I love this stuff. I, it, I mean, we'll talk about it, but the film has a re- low-key and low-fi for various non-Moonraker budget, uh, you know, new era reasons. But it it is a very 1981 film. I mentally always tie this in with like the Long Good Friday, which itself also made a, a big play of East London and just shooting right. grimy post-war uh, you know, locations that haven't been developed yet. And I, I love Few Eyes Only for that. It's got a real LWT sort of uh, right. English TV <laughs> look about it. And I, I don't say that as a cuss. The sequence also has some really great model work mm. by Derek Meddings. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize the extent of it until right. well after the movie was out. I saw this picture of Meddings standing in front of the model helicopter. like, And suddenly I realized how much they did show the um, the models. Um, it goes into where he goes into the structure that he flies into. But uh, hmm. yeah, it's, I, it's really great stuff. Full and they, and they, they, they work it in so well. Like, and I'm thinking about our conversations when we watched Quantum of Solace last week and how so much of the action was like not legible. Like we didn't know where we were spatially. We couldn't really figure out what was happening from movement to movement. And there's some great cuts between um, you know, you know, the the fingers touching the the device that's moving it and it's corresponding quite well to the actual like images that we're getting of the the helicopter doing what it's doing. Mm. I just mm. think that I fully understand and get what's happening in this scene. And I think that just compares to where Quantum of Solace kind of lost mm. pretty much lots of us and lots of our yeah. audience where we couldn't understand what was happening. And I think this is just really well done and I get it. Mm. I, yeah. one, one of the things I, 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 I have literally watched this recently. One of the things is that John Glenn, you can tell he's an editor. So the, the, right. the shot choices he makes, he's, he's already finished yeah. the film before they start shooting he knows what he mm. needs and there's a real economy to it he i think he doesn't get nearly enough praise there's never going to be a director who'll do five bonds in a row and more you know take take the series you know across a decade uh and i i just i i agree with you lisa there's a real economy and a precision to the action scenes because that's kind of what he cut his teeth on now we're a delicatessen from stainless steel just got uttered. I still what don't understand that. I still don't understand nine, that. Nineteen thirties mafia payoffs. Oh, is it like to, some so you can keep give, ham and cheese? To, no. Well, no. It was they would they would give somebody a business um, as a payoff, you know, like um, to go clean. And that was a. That that's all? where the line of delicatessen and stainless steel from New York comes. So is that from. almost a McClory? dig because that whole blow failed pinging him away down a chimney was obviously a sort of i think yes actually the iconography of dumping blowfield was a bugger off mcclory we can do it without you Mm. 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 because they were after the lawsuits of spy love me now we're in the main titles and of course for the first time and i think the only time we can see the actual title song performer Mm. because the story goes that maurice binder was so taken with uh with her that uh he got the idea we got to put her in the title and so they did um and the the funny thing about her was that she she won some tv talent show or something too and i remember watching it at the time and and 
I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but um, you know, it, it was a kind of reality TV of the time. Mm. Yeah, it was a Scottish. You know, well, she was obviously a Scottish. Thing. She was sort of, and I'm yeah. not, she was the Susan Boyle of her time. She, 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 <laughs> yeah, right. she like won that, this competition yeah. within less than a year. She then gets a Bond song, which didn't happen to Susan Boyle. Um, yeah. uh, she, or, she <laughs> or she got, or she got, was an anal bump party, right? Yeah, I know <laughs> well, what you mean. Which, yeah, that. Uh, <laughs> Ask, ask your grandkids that one, folks. Um, but yeah, I was about to say, and this this song also got an Academy Award nomination, and this would be the last Oscar nomination for the Bond series until Skyfall. Yeah. Um, and I'll I'll wait till the end credits to go in this more detail. But this helps set up probably the most Bond oriented Oscars telecast. I won't talk about it now, but I'll wait till the I, end. I credits. kind of feel that we it, that no Bond song got nominated for a while because of that. So yes. Do explain. Yeah. It's, it's it's a moment. <laughs> well, it's more than one moment, but yeah, it's a lot of moments. Yeah, which I'll wait. I'll wait. I'm not sure. I'm feeling the bubbles though in this credit sequence. Like I know that oftentimes there's like water involved or air, yeah. and here we have fish. But like the big bubbles, I'm just not necessarily feel yeah. like small bubbles are fine. But I just don't understand like the big focus on like the big bubbles. Um, just wanted to throw that, that I feel that it's just a little out of step with typically what you would sort of expect to see a, in a title credit sequence. It's a beautifully fluid title sequence for Binder, though. He doesn't do those slightly awkward freeze frames, which he hopes no one's noticed. Right. And then before he moves on, there's a fluidity to it. And I, I think it's a lovely uh, Bond motif, like most of his ones are, but this is one of the special ones. You can, yes, and you can see his attention to Sheena Easton. And Double Dip was a music video, didn't it, for the song? Mm. And they just took the credits yeah. off and that was Yeah, it. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder if Binder knew that there would the opening scene would be the boat, so he cut the water into the... That's what uh, I, I yeah. that's what I suspect because it's certainly a nice. Segue. Oh, look at his look at his jumper. Look at if... his jumper. That looks very familiar. That, yeah, they go. Oh, yeah, that's that's a CNA man at CNA jumper. That is. I'm going to the NPL website now, seeing if I can get my own. <laughs> St. George's crew crew members. Well, I was about jumping. to say what doomed MI6 surveillance guy. You got to think. I was thinking about this the other day. The the the, the, Brit, the British the British armed forces really didn't. The British armed forces really didn't have a good time of it in Rogers pre titles because mm. you had um, Spy Love Me submarine gets captured. Uh, Royal the Royal Navy um, Moonraker the Royal Air Force right. Mm. loses the Moonraker and blows up and then on this one it's back to the Royal Navy and yeah we're going to blow you up as well fish for supper mm. again <laughs> you're on a boat get used to um, it this, this movie also uh, marked a transition in the crew because as we noted John Glenn he got promoted from being editor and second unit director to the director's chair and Ken Adam departed so Peter Lamont got promoted and then John Glenn had the chance to select a new second unit director, which is Arthur Wooster, a new director of photography, uh, folks like that. Um, and then Tom Pev Pevsner got yeah. uh, brought aboard as associate producer. And he was kind of a, from what I gather, he was a bit of a Mr. Fix it, uh -huh. um, arranging, you know, making sure that everything got shot on time. I really like, by the way, seeing this this internal sequence that this is sort of like this hidden layer on a boat. It's got the metalwork that we've talked a lot about that seems to be just part of Bondish style. Um, and I actually love seeing these sort of these spy espionage yeah. or data That's collection elements 
I, I like I that in my Bond films. That's, That's how, how I type. type. That might be <laughs> yeah, me I too, like the fact much. that the, key, the, the, the keyboard was supposedly hidden under the sheet of stainless steel, but there's one red button on it <laughs> <laughs> that opens it up. It's like, mm. there, there was a fleeting was shot of a dot matrix printer as well. That was nice. <laughs> They've just pulled we'll out see another one later. from the sea. No, no, it was too soon. <laughs> <laughs> I am wondering though, this is the thing, is this just, this is accidental, right? This wasn't yes. like a planted yes. thing. Yeah. This is, it's so like, this a, it's an old World War II mine. At least that's how that's I took model it. Shot. Right. Yeah. yeah. And okay. this was based on a real mm. event where a Russian submarine, was it? Um, sunk in um, effectively no man's land, and the U.S. scrambled an operation to um, to raise it. I think with Howard Hughes's help. Is that yes, right? Yes, that's oh. right. I'm it was Howard Hughes. Yes. Wow. So they 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 obviously wanted to get it, see if there's anything on it. You know? mm. And it it became public only because a reporter named Seymour Hirsch got wind of it and wrote it up and. I think he, by that time he was working at the New York Times. So it was kind of an embarrassment for all concerned because yeah. I don't think they were able to get the submarine up. I want to re-edit this where the guy reaches the button and then that's the end credits. <laughs> <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> Red telephone alert, though. See? Mm. Red telephone. Yeah, but yeah. Frederick Gray does not coincide his clothing with red telephones in a beautiful way that Gogol does. He really coordinates right. those plastic chair right. phones. There's, well, there's to, a real precision but, there. That's that's the KGB for you. But to be honest, honest we never see uh, uh, Freddie Gray in his pajamas either. So <laughs> that is true. Is this the painting at the background? Or have we actually got a set this time? Because there was a, there was a painting last time, wasn't it, or a couple of films ago? Right. I think it's a pain. Too. And yeah. red telephone in use. Yeah, it's mm. when he's got the matching pajamas. I think that's not this film. That's um, that's Moonraker. Yeah, yeah that's. I just love that. <laughs> that that that's how I intend to to live out my years. <laughs> you mean you're not you're not living like that at the moment? Not at the moment. No, no. I <laughs> I feel we're all going a little more analog in the last two months, so we will all be starting to use plastic red phones. Mm. Ah, beautiful. The med. A lot of jumping around in this opening, isn't yeah, there? Right? Yeah, I had yeah. to explain it to my husband the other day when we were watching it. He went, what's going on? I said, well, the ship. Yeah, but who blew up the ship? I said, no, 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 that was an accident. And the, yeah, mm. they're sort of trying to fill it in. Um, but I love it. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a nice, tight, sort of spy caper launch pad. I do wonder if audiences of the time would know who Freddie Gray was, like because obviously right. Bernard Lee passed away and he's not in here, so instead mm. we have Freddie Gray and we'll see Bill Tanner mm, later mm. on. But Freddie Gray is very much like that scene would have been someone rushing into M to report this, mm. or he'd be on the phone hearing it. And here we have Freddie Gray, and obviously we fans know who that is, but I don't know if general audiences would have yeah. paid that much attention to so him. So is the clap? I. I just assume general fans would assume he's an important guy and is going to mm. boss, then boss, that, bond on his mission. Is the, uh, is the klaxon ready for the parrot? So I want to say that's Diana Riggs' parrot. But I've, yeah, it is, is Diana true? Riggs' parrot. I, I just oh, feel that's a yes. myth. Yeah. And it's also no, the Blade and um, one, isn't it, as well? Or is that a myth as well? It's, it was Diana Riggs' parrot. She gave it up to somebody else. But it is, to quote John Cleese, uh, we could do a riff on that whole sketch, yeah. but it is – it was Diana Riggs' parrot, and it's the same parrot in Living Daylights. Right, good. No. Wow. That's why you're here, Calvin. What a lovely orange chair that is. Mm. <laughs> it's probably a Bond museum of chairs. They should be. 
<laughs> Bond static sitting down. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually obsessed by that yeah. chair now. I really want that chair. That, oh, yeah. Anyway, great British actor there, Jack Hedison, I think. Yeah. Uh, it was quite a 70s, 80s name. Ended up that's in a right. very funny episode of Fools and Horses. <laughs> that's that's my only factoid I'll be bringing. Can we talk? Can we talk Actually, about her lie. image? Be because mm. um, I know that there's a little bit of a difference between how she's presented in the film and, of course, the promotional still um, yeah. for the woman that is shot between the legs, wearing um, sort of the bikini bottoms and these silver stiletto heels. It's an image that never actually happens in the film. And so she is actually less sexualized um, on screen for somebody who is part of the water in the water a lot. She is fairly covered for, for the vast majority of this film. And maybe that helps her with this personal mission of, of revenge which I think is important. And we talked about Camille Montez in the last uh, movie, having yeah. her own personal um, uh, motivation. And that's what drives her. And she's with Bond because they connect together. They have somewhat similar paths. So maybe not mm. sexualizing her so much helps us to sort of tap into um, that motivation, connect with her eyes more than, than anything else. So I just wanted to throw mm. it out there. Are you guys? It's, it's the beginning of R Rogers three film where he's three theme cycle where he sort of becomes, I mean, he gets a lot of flack, particularly the time of you to a kill for the casting and the, the, the age gap between him and Tanya Roberts. But he plays a similar role in the, in the eighties, in his eighties bomb films where he's slightly, almost like a godfather mm. or a friend of the family who's helping, who's helping the leading lady, but basically pretend her, uh, uh, preserve her father's legacy and I, I i kind of like that thing i mean it's it's daddy issues but we don't need to read into it in that way um and i i i've always liked the casting of bouquet and more in this i there's us they both feel like they would know their way around paris in the early 80s so i kind of i feel they're both of that same chinsano well, uh, you guys world. were making light of my age um, before we started recording but i'll just remind <laughs> you she was born one year before i was um <laughs> <we're>, <laughs> yeah carol bouquet um, um, we're in uh, M's office, and of course, uh, Roger Bond tossed the hat on the hat rack, which was a first for the Roger right. <laughs> films, which mm -hmm. was, again, trying to bring it back to the original early films. And of course, you never actually see him wear the hat. He just he just carries it for tossing on the hat rack, I guess. And here we have Tanner, um, because as originally written, it was going to be M, and Bernard Lee's health didn't uh, permit him to do it, and will actually. And there's a major change from the early script to the final film coming up later because of that. But uh, uh, the guy playing Tanner, I know he, I know he was uh, a guest star on an episode of the Avengers TV show. He's, uh, you know, in the books, Tanner was the closest thing Bond had to a friend in the Secret Service, but here he's just kind of a stuffy bureaucrat. Yeah. Yeah, this actor is James Villiers, who I've seen in a few things. He was in uh, Bette Davis' horror film, British horror film called The Nanny, where he played a sort of distant father who's just far more occupied with his mm. office job and posho friends. And every time I've seen him in anything, he does this kind of plummy voice and he's very above it all and all that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with what you say. He's not the Bill Tanner of the of the books. Oh, I'm, I'm kids, never are sure. We gonna, we... Are we going to get a Lotus Esprit chase sequence? <laughs> That'd be great. You know, we've never really gotten the Tanner of the books. We've had a hint now and then. Mm. Um, 
Um, but not really. It's just, mm. it's like a name and like, oh, we here's a Fleming character. So we right. put it in the script. Yeah. Well, when I saw this at the cinema, um, I saw it with some the, the some kids of some Spanish par- Spanish friends of my parents who were staying with us for the summer, and uh, they were all all excited in this bit because it was uh, supposed to be set in Spain. Ah. Hmm. Does anyone know if there's a reason? Like the Lotus has like Turbo written along the side and Lotus on the back. Was that like a requirement for? Call right, your okay, local you, dealer. You can, you're only going to use it for a couple of minutes, so we want it the name plastered all over it. I think the car was actually like that. Mm. Oh wow! Oh okay. Huh. Mm. I, I'm going to bring up a point here, which I. It was underlined for me recently when I was watching Ryan Murphy's Pose. And it, it's again, it's a bit of a few eyes only trivia, but we have a great little moment here with um, uh, the actress yeah. who was known as Tula at the time. And she's a trans actress. And uh, maybe Lisa's got some thoughts and, uh, and some add ons here. She's the one just climbing up here now. Uh, Caroline uh, Costa, I think she was called. But do not underestimate the importance for the LGBT, particularly the trans community, yeah. of Fear Eyes Only and that pool scene because it's got a, it's got a high resonance. And Ryan Murphy, you know, a contemporary drama about eighties uh, LGBT folk that was on recently. One of the characters who's a trans actress mentions her and says, "Oh, she's in that big film at the moment, and if if she can do it, I can do it." And that, that's there's a sort of Bond films are often ahead of the curve. I've been discussing this with other for other reasons in other ways at the moment, and I I always just think the Tula thing, yes, it became a tabloid, you know, joke quite cruelly, but um, she was quite a pioneer. It was it was a astute, quiet move of Cubby and the casting folk to uh, include And her. especially with media, I mean, there's this notion that you can be what you can see, and it's there's a huge push when we talk about underrepresented mm. groups, whether it's in terms of gender, sexual orientation, race, and so this mm. is a film in a franchise that is frequently criticized mm. for being regressive and for being problematic and for having a lot of the isms, racism, classism, and things like that, to have this sort of standalone moment Um I think it's very forward thinking. And so Mm. I think it complicates this broader conversation of what the James Bond franchise is doing in terms of gender, in terms of um, identities, in terms of representation. I don't think it's it. I think it gets a lot of criticism um, and some of it is warranted. But I think that there are also other points and other Mm. bright points uh, that need to be highlighted. And we need to focus in on all of these moments to get a complete picture. Mm. Uh, mm. Although that is horrific. Yes. Uh, <laughs> sorry to change the subject, really but I, I just Te- wanted to point Texas out that this low-level hitman there. knew who James Bond was, knew he had a Walter PPK, mm-hmm. and just waves him away, like, take care of him. Like, yeah, he's like nothing. I always get the sense that Gonzalez there is just acting like way above his station. He's acting yes. like, oh, yes. I'm the big villain here. Yeah. And, and then he just gets off so quickly. Yeah. And I like how Locke just sits there and watches it all kick off. Like, <laughs> yes. And hey... And takes the He's money as he goes. Yeah, that's the, or there he goes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and, and but, but get, and, get it, getting the arrow in the back is straight out of the short story. It's uh, that right. you no. Know, very often, there's not very much of uh, of Ian Fleming in the Roger Moore films, but that definitely is one of the moments, and and as is a lot of. I don't, I don't, and, and in I fact, I'd argue this is the most. Yes, <laughs> I would. I was about to say the same thing. It is. It's oh. definitely the most, and I think it's like right Xbox there. Simmons. Yes, 
I must be a Bobson wins. Oh, I was about to say, this is a like loud... Sean Connery for a second, there, didn't it? I was about to say, this is almost equal to Casino Royale in terms of amount of Fleming content. Yeah. yeah. Because you, 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 mm-hmm. have, you have bits from two short stories. I, I would give Casino a slight mm. edge only in that um, Casino Royale retains the main plot, adds a lot to it. Whereupon this ha- the main plot is something that Richard Maybaum and Michael Wilson added on to the bits from the two short stories. I mean, it's 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 and, a judgment and, call, but and a chunk of living that mm. die. Yeah, mm. yeah, mm. right. Because that keel hauling sequence that's in the movie later, of course, they were going to put into Moonraker with uh, Bond and Holly Goodhead, and uh, of course that first draft had so much. It, you know, a friend of mine joked, you know, they'd still be. They would still be filming it if they were doing the first draft of Moonraker. But, I, uh, I just noticed that guy with the shovel. Uh, he he was a bit of um, a quantum of solace. Um, um, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> very light. Well, 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 real quick about uh, Broom Guy from Quantum of Solace. Somebody on Twitter found this movie yes. from the forties, and they yes. they managed to zoom it over to the side, and was like, a guy Same is supposed thing. to be, yeah, a guy is supposed to be like planting or something stuff along the. side of a military building and his shovel is like three inches above the ground and it's, like, <laughs> and it's the exact same thing like decades apart and we've got julian's son here is it michelle julian who's driving the other car he was also in uh, living daylights at the beginning uh, i believe so this this yeah. is probably a reme julian little uh, sequence right yeah his son's name's in the main titles at some point i remember seeing it so what do you think of the driving sequence here? Because oftentimes Bond flirts with women uh, behind uh, when, when he's driving. He seems to be attracted to women who know how to drive and drive really fast. And in a scene like this, he's got nothing but kind of complaints about the way right. uh, the mm-hmm. driving is. And he takes mm-hmm. over. And again, this might go back to the, him being sort of the godfather to her. Um, or he's, maybe there's just less sexualization on her part. It's not even sort of a sexy car. Any thoughts on this scene and where it factors into the franchise at large when it comes to chases and the uh, use of women uh, within those chases? Well, I think well, Mark not, was not- totally right um, earlier on calling out the whole Godfather element to this. And um, it, it's such a stark contrast to Moonraker and The Spy Who Loved Me, where you know the female co-star can barely do anything without James Bond raising his eyebrow or having some kind of <laughs> right. quip and smirk. And here he's just, he takes on a much more paternal role which i think is more appropriate um and i i i I, yeah i dislike the element of the film where you know they have to have sex and they have to sort of be romantically involved well um specifically yeah he had to be more um older because you know going back to the first scene in the movie you know because Mm -hmm. they they have 1969 as uh tracy's death date and which of course was when that movie came out so he has to be older um, now they don't specify Bond's age, but he is, you know, he's not in his thirties by any means. Right. And, um, well, there's a, there's a little bit later on where BB says that, um, Julian Glover's character is older than Bond, but Roger was actually eight years older than Julian Glover. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Sorry. To answer your question, Lisa, there's, there's bits in here where she, 
she gets him out of the jam too by getting it in reverse yeah. and doing all that kind of stuff. So it's a collaboration here, isn't it? Between and the also, two of them. And also they had made the conscious decision to blow up the Lotus, blow up the gadget car and put right. Bond in a, you know, considerably lesser powered vehicle. Um, I don't know where I'm watching exactly compared to you guys, but you know, they're going down the hill at some point. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. He makes some kind of joke and she starts to laugh. And I, I always wondered if that was like an ad lib or something right. and they just kept it in the movie. Cause yeah, I don't think nice I, I, in a tense car chase, I didn't think it was stage direction, make a joke. Yeah. <laughs> so it was so it doesn't fit, but it's a good character moment between the relationship of them. I think. And I think that, mm. oh, go ahead, Mark. I think after no, no, just after the 60s and 70s with all these like, great classic iconic car chases, Bond did have a dilemma, as he always has more so now, of how do we do the car chase? How do we do it? So maybe just take it back, make it sort <laughs> of Herbie goes to uh, to uh, to Corfu a little bit. And I, I think it works because it's low-key yeah. and it's lo-fi. And that, That's that my favorite, Roger. My name is Bond James Bond yeah. performance. There. Also, Mark just said about you know the dilemma – if you're writing a Bond movie, sometimes you have a dilemma. You don't know what car they're going to have. And, right. and mm-hmm. so like in the, in the first mm. draft of what would become Tomorrow Never Dies, Bruce Fairstein didn't even bother to try. He just said, stage directions, just say, car, whatever car we get. <laughs> whatever. He, just, <laughs> he didn't even try. You know. It was inter- interesting you bring up Fairstein there because the working title, a working title of The World Is Not Enough yes. was Electra. Uh, which would have linked back to all of this stuff. Um, I quite like the title of Electra, but it got sort of uh, dropped along and the way. And just to add to the car thing, I think as Bond is getting older, I think there have to be ways for us to showcase his abilities. And when you do have a souped up car with all these gadgets, it's a lot easier to evade somebody chasing you when you press a button and the car does the work. And in this case, he shows that regardless of what car you give him, he's still capable. He can roll it. He can do this. He can do that. He has this intuitive use of technology. It doesn't have to be, you know, hyper advanced, but Bond will always come out on top. And I think that is a way for him to sort of uh, represent his heroic masculinity in this film. You can strip Bond down of of the technological elements and he can still get it done. Bond could be on a moped and he would come out on Mm. top Mm -hmm. because that's just how it works. Yeah. I mean, there's a slight sort of Harry Palmer mm-hmm. aesthetic about this film. We we Bond and Melina, they bond and they, they form a friendship when he meets her. Uh, uh, I always get Corfu yes. in Greece and Italy mixed up in this film. Um, I'm not very good with med. Um, but uh, he meets her and they sort of bond over just collecting food for the ship and the, the, the weekly supply trip. I, I just love its incidental mm-hmm. beauty. I, My I favorite Q branch scene of the entire franchise. <laughs> Some it's great gadgets. Whole set. Well, the whole set as well. It's like this is probably like, close to closer to reality than um, any of the others, mm. except for the except for the white coats that they wear. Because you know, and the amount so, of heels no. these women are wearing. Like, I, right. I get the idea of wearing a dress, wearing heels to work, but it's also supposed to be like a technological job. And if you're on your feet all day long. I guess that like heels are not necessarily the most functional shoes to be wearing if you are a scientist working all day long. So just wanted to throw that out there. I get that it's aesthetic femininity and all that stuff. But every time I see women wearing like a lot of heels, as somebody who sucks at wearing heels, I look like a baby deer that's just been born. That's me on heels. <laughs> it is that level. But I like it, seeing it was, Go ahead, sorry. It was also 
No, no, but it was also mm, Brian mm-hmm. Ferry Britton at the time. So I think there was it wasn't just also you know sort of overt sexism. It was that that was the fashion. I I I never understand high heels. I I have full marks to anyone that wears them. But but um, yeah, that, there's a lot of sort of early '80s glamour. I think some of the girls. Particularly at the poolside, and maybe in the Q right. lab there, were yeah. sort of let's say glamour models. They would do slightly fruitier yeah. so, things. Ah, now we yeah, have I, the most amazing HIV well, check in the world. When I use Google reverse image search, my room goes to red lighting as well. <laughs> See, it's the red again. The red when you're doing, you know, deep mm. stuff. I like how Roger walks in, picks the third can off the first shelf. Like, well, that's the boot disc. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and the, the, it takes a minute of screen time but they've managed to go into like yeah, early hours it's like lunchtime a, everybody's gone home no, no, everybody's gone home the, uh, the, the jackets are off they've been out this for hours <laughs> and she's science because she's got a lab but you wouldn't know it Roger science-y. Moore looks really good in this red light he looks real like a, a heck of a lot more useful in this red light than he does I think for the rest of, of the film just want to throw that out there that's someone who had the Philips Hue light bulb that you could change to various <laughs> colors. I, I, I can um, confirm quite strongly that red is a flattering color on almost everyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's why the brothel exactly. it. I was about to say, actually, Roger Allegedly. Moore looks quite fit through most of this movie. He looked yeah. very fit in the Oh Gonzalez sequence, um, and he looks, you know, very hmm. slim and fit. He looks. Looks great for he was what fifty two or so when yeah. they mm. started. Dang, filming he looks good. Yeah. yeah, everybody else has gone home. Tanner's still at his desk. <laughs> yeah. I think it's so amazing from that like, like that digital sketch. They actually came out with like a detailed representation. If you, I'm just saying, it, like technology. Wow, it's on, really on about six thirty when this happened. Yeah, not in on, the middle of the night. But anyway, on the, on, on the screen it says, "This machine thanks you for your attention. Goodbye." <laughs> so the production team had a bit of a chuckle Snow. so this whole conceit of the winter olympics was because oh. in 1980 the winter olympics were in the u.s weren't they and it was really mm. popular hugely popular and um and um so the producers thought they're yeah. gonna whack the winter olympics into the next film because people like that stuff when the americans beat the russians the big uh, mm, yeah but i think it that sort of like that 50s sense of alpine winter olympics glamour is still something that bond of this era can latch on to because i'm a big big olympic um, crazy fan as well and i think it was 56 yep. cortina held the winter games and i, I kind of like that that sort of hitchcock alpine glamour that it's, uh, it's also to. in the first pink panther movie in 1963 there's a sequence that yes i, I think northern italy yeah. like this yeah. is supposed to be. i i was exactly thinking of that bill yes There's a lot of Olympic. I mean, there's Olympics. Bizarrely, the um, uh, Blofeld's Alpine henchmen in Secret Service all have these Olympic logos. Right. I've never quite worked out why, apart from the, the skiing thing. And then there's a Miranda yeah. Frost Olympic reference. Um, uh, yeah, maybe, well, if we ever have Olympics, maybe Bond could go back. That hotel room is like one of the worst hotel rooms. He should have the London game. Oh, he did. He did the London games. I forgot. Sorry, he did the London games. Yeah, when London does the Winter Olympics, it'll be something, though, won't it? <laughs> well, I remember completely irrelevant fact uh, that when they were planning the uh, 
millennium celebrations, they were going to freeze the Thames and have the Queen walk over it. No. <laughs> yep. Huh? What, like, like yep. Terence Stanley? Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> to, go, to go to open the Millennium Dome, they're going to have a walk over a frozen Thames. They're going to freeze it. <laughs> Let it go. Please tell me that that was... Uh, same, same year, wasn't it, maybe? Uh, great, John. I've, I've had breakfast with Luigi. He's a lovely guy. You know, always always in uh, the shadow Marino. area, though, isn't he? That's the problem. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, he does look a bit well, clueless. Yeah. it up. I, I guess he was just directed that way, but Bond's whole shtick here is to sort of just be the straight man to him. Uh, whereas in the previous ones, Roger Moore might have well played up to this, but here he's... You know, I've only just noticed... I've only just noticed Bond's got a B on his zipper. Oh, it's for it's that's, for Bogner. You know why? Bogner. That's the uh, <laughs> yeah. It's the Bogner clothing but, range, which still exists. Because of View to a Kill, I thought, ah, that's well, very close to be Bogner. Bogner. Well, and, yeah. and Calvin knows this from just having done a video about that uh, James Bond twenty fifth anniversary special when mm. Roger Moore is wearing the Bogner jacket. That he, mm. you know, I don't know if it's the same one as in this movie, but it's the same yes. style. And he like skis backwards and then they go into a four your eyes only clip, which mm. I think is like one of the best moments in that special. Um, yeah. But yeah, the B is for Bogner, not Bond. Hmm. Did I, I thought it was you... for BB doll. Well, I was just going <laughs> to say about um, BB doll, like the uh, double entendre of that name only occurred to me recently. And I can't remember. I'm sorry. I can't remember where it's I first it, heard it's, it. But... It's because it's crap. Well, yeah, baby doll. <laughs> it, it's not good, but that was one of those things where it only occurred to me like 20 years after first seeing yeah. this film. Well, I, Like I, all the I best jokes, you have to have it now. explained to you. <laughs> so here uh, we have uh, BB Doll's uh, mentor, who is played by, I believe, Jill Bennett, who mm, was yeah. in one of the Warwick films, mm. Hell Below Zero. Uh, so she... Mm. And she was married yeah, to John so, Osborne. So she has, uh, she has ties back to Cubby yeah. Broccoli. Angry you know, young men. Going back decades. You know what's well, interesting? This is making me think of Domino and um, Largo and how he couldn't say that she was his kept woman or lover because of her youth or her young age. And yet when I looked at them, I was like, wait a second. They kind of, I don't really mm-hmm. see that age disparity. Whereas here, when you see the disparity between BB doll and, and the older gentleman beside her, you, she looks more childlike. And so to see any sort of lust that he has towards her, it feels a little weird. And it's interesting Mm -hmm. that even though oftentimes uh, bond is paired with a younger woman, um, that there is a line as to what is considered appropriate. Like there is such a thing as too young. And there's, I think there's this idea that Bond will sleep with anyone, but the answer is actually no, that Bond will not sleep with somebody that he considers to be a child or a teenager, that there's a line that he's interested in women and not girls, which is sometimes why I push for the idea to refer to the women in the films as being women instead mm-hmm. of being yeah. adolescent girls, because it really stresses the fact that there is that line with, with Bond. In real you know, life, quote, the um, actress was born in, I think, 1958, and Julian Glover was born in, I think, 1935. More, that's roughly yeah. the age difference we're talking about. But he, he plays the role a lot older than he is in this yes. film. Yeah, as I mentioned, Roger was eight years older than him, so that's... Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, whereupon, uh, of course, uh, Carolyn Boquette is like born in 1957, so she's only like one year older, and mm. she's supposed to be the more mature of the two figures mm. in the film. Mm. But of course, you know, actresses and actors aren't necessarily playing the age they are, but yeah, still just something to keep in mind. Also coming up, we're at the flower yep. store and, and, oh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, she's get um, she's buying a crossbow. Yeah. She's getting the crossbow and um, Bond goes into a flower store and the clerk he talks to like won a competition from Playboy magazine yep. to be in the movie. Yeah, her name is what Robin Douglas, maybe. I'm not sure. She's just anyway, filled out her hmm. background check form for the crossbow. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so so she's in there like she gets like um, a line or two, and but yeah, that was a Playboy contest. But yeah, Lisa, you, you were saying about uh, Bond and the car before, uh, where he was relying on it on his own wits rather than gadgets in the car. But it's the same here when he takes out the motorcyclist with a a bit of. Um, um, signage or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yep. And can I say I guess- one thing about the crossbow as being a weapon of choice for her? I think about, um, I teach a, a unit looking at the Hunger Games and hunting girls, and we always talk about like the value of different types of weaponry. And a crossbow is a different type of weapon than, say, a gun. Um, and it has a different uh, connection, say, uh, to nature, to the earth, to natural systems than than a gun has. And so when you look at her, she is someone who's presented in a more natural way with the longer hair. Her family was associated with the ocean. It seems to be it's, it's a weapon of revenge, but it's also not like um, we don't consider it to be like a super violent type of, of weapon where you can you know fire multiple bullets and things like mm-hmm. that. And so I think it's an interesting choice to give that to her as being her vengeful in, in the mode short, of, of it. In the short story, it was a longbow rather than the crossbow that she mm-hmm. had. And, uh, and uh, when Bond comes across her, he refers to her as Robina Hood. <laughs> do you think yes, the and- change has to do with Chewbacca? Because I see that and I think of like Chewbacca having yeah. whatever his version of it was. You know, and no, it happened you, a couple of years before. I, I have, I have wondered I, why they made the it change, was, but um, yeah, it's possible that you're right because I, I it's it's just different, isn't it? Isn't it just yeah. different and quite vicious? I, I feel it was nothing because it's quite an elegant, even though it's a horrible. I always think crossbows are really scary. They're like massive right. mouse traps that could go off. Um, I, I think it's just different. It, it's a vision. It looks visually beautiful as well it is like lisa alludes to it it's kind of there's an old school robin hood sort of well, regardless of it. whether it's a longbow or a crossbow it's a weapon that requires skill in its yes. deployment as opposed to a machine gun where it's right. just point and fire and pull, you know keep keep your finger on the trigger yeah. um mm, here we see like guns are yeah. phallic. And when we think about like the emerging action films around this time, having an automatic weapon or a low slung gun, I'm thinking of Sigourney Weaver and aliens carrying that gun very low. Sarah Connor coming out in 1991, carrying the low gun. Uh, their bodies had to match that form of masculinity or that masculine heroic performance. Whereas weapons like the crossbow or even just a bow and arrow do not necessarily have the same iconographic and body expectations because as you say, they're skill-based um, and well, they need precision versus, say, the strength to hold them. But they're, um, 
but aren't they also tying into sort of the, an older era mm-hmm. of Fleming and uh, yeah. Spycraft and a different era of weaponry as well? I, I I feel that that's more what's going on here. Again, it's the film tapping back to By the way, different speaking bases. of Falic, going back to the main titles, near the end of the main titles, you had one of Binder's silhouette nudes sliding down the uh, shaft of a pistol. So, yes, it's right. uh, yes, they're Falic. As I say, they reshot a lot of that carriage ride on the back lot at Pinewood matched it up later for whatever reason that room yes. looks like it stinks of cigarettes <laughs> it's the, I, think it's Bond's worst, yeah. I think it's the worst hotel room he stays in in the whole franchise series mm. yeah it doesn't it's look just, very glamorous no that mm. phone looks smelly that's why he didn't hang around the whole room just stinks yes, you get your clothes on I'll buy you an ice cream. See, I timed that pretty good, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me that was meant to happen. I was like, where's well, this voice coming from? Well, the I'll tell you, in the me. Mad Magazine parody of this movie, he did go to bed with her, and it's really creepy. Oh. I, I, yeah, I don't recommend it. It was it was like, he's in bed with her, and there's Olympic judges. It's like, you know, with their numbers oh. being put up. It's It was not a good moment for uh, Mort Drucker. The late Lord Drucker. <laughs> well, maybe post Polanski, maybe it was a wise move to maybe not go there. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm, well, in 1981 or 82, when they did that parody, I'm not sure if Polanski was exactly at the top of mind when they were doing that parody. <laughs> I do think Lynn Holly Johnson plays it quite well in this film. I, I just asked like, like you know, she, yeah. she 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 doesn't play yes. it as this sexy seductress kind of thing, which is very appropriate. She does play it sort of nice as pie, uh, even when she's getting into bed and throwing out the towel, and she does this little like giggle, squints sort of her thing. eyes. Yeah, yeah, she, exactly. It's she, like it, it's good. It's 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 nice. Um, she that she, she plays aspires to be a femme fatale, but isn't. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it's very obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That- there's a sort of tortoise and hare nature about Brink mm. and um, BB. That at the end, Bond is not helped by. All right, he's got uh, he's he's got uh, Topol's mates, but he's not helped by sort of uh, you know the military kicking in or right. Shane Rimmer and a submarine mm. full of extras. There's a you know a woman and her uh, well, a girl and her uh, mental help, and I I kind of like that. Again, it's there's a it's it's very Cold War as well. Jakob Brink, you know, there's a history there of her on different sides of the Iron Curtain. Like, you know, again, keeps using this phrase that we, that we do with this film. It's going back to an, a different era of, of spy narration he has the and help of, at most a half dozen people in the climactic sequence, you know, because mm. uh, Columbo mm. brings a few of his men, but yeah, it's it's not many. It's not it's not a big uh, cavalry to the rescue kind of thing. Mm. And I'm sure the costumes in this scene influenced a lot of the costume thinking in uh, yep. Kingsman, the Golden yep. Circle. Um, there's the guy that plays Mandalorian, I can't remember his name, but he has this great sort of cowboy Stetson fur ensemble, and it's the same cut with those cowboy shoulders. Uh, I'm sure someone's watched like this one. Now, the music during this sequence is actually very under... Well, I, I about to say, when he goes up to the... It's a car phone thing, for the ages. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, some of this music's good. Some of it's over the top. It's a little uneven. I love it. I love it because it so doesn't quite fit this sort of, you know, like you say, this pink panther I, alpine I, I do like retreat. he loves He rips off his number like somebody wouldn't recognize him. 
It's a shame that he, uh, yeah, uh, was so determined on being a villain. He would have been a very good, just Olympian, really. Um, mind, poor Eric. He's kind of hot, though. I watched this recently. I never noticed. Oh, Eric Kriegler. Yeah, he's he's that well, sort of oh, yeah, later cute. on. Um, yeah. Which Bond didn't always. Yeah, I was like, I don't even mind the sort of Lego man. <laughs> hair, right? Sorry, I've I've said all that out well, loud. This will. I was about to say. Also, bear in mind, of course, you still had East and West Germany at this point, and they they specified Eric Krieger mm. was with the East German team. So, right, you mm. had to assume they were all like you know hmm. commie agents and you and you, going back to you lisa and david your points about bond being basically without his usual um accoutrement to to win face-offs here they've taken his gun off him in the ski, ski sequence mm. and these poles <laughs> right yeah mm-hmm. this is like the th- this is the third time in the film they've done this to him yeah Right. The music up to this point is still like really tense and really good. It's uh, once the main chase begins, it gets a little over the top. Once the main chase begins, that's the music that would eventually be used with the uh, main titles of the syndicated show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. But uh, of course, yeah, that, it's sort of like a Rocky II montage from Conti. But right I, I lo- here, love it you know, the sequence, it's, it's still very tense. And you know, I, like, uh, I like the music right here. And I love, again, I always say this, I like ski chases, snow chases, and you see here Bond with one pole doing it better than, you know, the the Olympic athlete. So Bond did a spin and managed to do these jumps and he was fine. And this guy who's supposed to be like the young, fit guy coming after him, he's the one who had to fall and now he's falling behind. And so... I, I, again, I think it's that notion of, of like stripping Bond away of stuff and Bond can still make it happen. You have two poles. I got one. I got this. Fleming's with them. Sorry. This scene stresses me out so much with Bond like skipping the queue like he does. Yeah. It's really well, concerning. It's, they tried to do it Inspector with Q, with, Inspector with Q didn't they? And it, and yeah, it kind of yeah, worked, but not yeah. as well as here. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> It's not sort of being surrounded by six formers on an alpine trip. It's not that tense. Oh, I love this extra on the left. He's, his eyes yeah. are really overworking. Yeah, look to him. He's really just <laughs> overworking the, uh, the scene. Yeah. Yeah, all right. It's oh much more. Yes, we know. Oh, my gosh, is that the king yes. from... Charles Dance. Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> I was like, oh, my gosh, I know him. Yeah, oh, well... He, he played Anne Fleming in a drama. <laughs> and the second uh, Game of Thrones alumni, yeah. uh, Julian Glover, who obviously was also in Indiana Jones and Star Wars. Yes. Well, I'd like to point out that connection. Say, the parrot's mum was also in Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah, she, she had it, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Somebody yeah. needs to write a paper of the connection of all the yeah. actors who showed up in Bond films who made their way into Game of Thrones, because those are just the moments... <laughs> My students are always like Diana Rigg. Oh my goodness! Wow. When they start making these connections, and 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 with Elliot Carver, and and he all of a sudden he was in you know Game of Thrones. I'm like, uh huh. They had careers beforehand. To quote a Mark <laughs> Gattis line, any bugger with an equity card at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I yeah. was about to say there are like a lot of things that have a lot of Bond alumni. I uh, won't name them. Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Series, but. Um, Oh, I love doing that. IMDb mm, yeah. is a great friend for that. But like, just like the connections between right. Bond and Dallas. Or something. <laughs> yeah. Don't do this, but, um, yeah. 
No, they're off. I get they're off. Awesome. Rap to bring him up, so I don't. <laughs> so nobody in this whole resort is worried about a guy poking a rifle out of a car at the bottom of the ski. <laughs> he's not actually that good, is he? Because he's he's been held up as like the greatest marksman that the East has. But he well, he, well, he got startled because. Uh, because they weren't coordinated because that guy skiing next to Bond makes his move. Yeah. And apparently Kriegler didn't know about he right. was going to be there. And, oh, oh, oh and he, I never realized that. You're right, Bill. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So, so in other words, the bad guys aren't very coordinated. Well, they're, also more honor, they're also more honorable because he didn't take the shot when his own person was in the way, unlike... Unlike M? MI6. Yes. <laughs> now, now we're in the sequence with the uh, theme that would be used for uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And also nice coming up... nice lens flare on this sequence. And also coming up, it's not there yet, mm-hmm. we'll see the third and final appearance of Victor Turjansky. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, and here we have uh, Buster Keaton comes to Bond with that. Uh, you know, this, yeah, yeah, just substitute a bunch of cyclists in Golden Knights, right? the same joke. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's wearing the Roger Moore blue in this era. It's it's hard to spot the stuntman. There's a lot of people in that shirt of blue, and then in, there's also a lot of people in red. Yeah, yeah. And the red as well. Yeah, maybe that's it. In fact, actually, that is a Willy Bogner trope, oh. dare I say, is in the 60s, he would do these very strange and beautiful sort of ice ski uh. dance films and he would often have prime colours like reds and blues. I'm sure he wasn't involved with the costume I, choices of this film or probably even the film, just, but they, they did do these things yeah. in the 60s. I'm just missing the preferred, profiteroles going in the air. That would just cap that sequence <laughs> There he is. I this really guy like a cake in the face, sequence. I keep thinking of Prunella Scales. Though. That's right. That's That's really right. Sequence for me when they, when Roger That's Moore right. did a Christmas ad, and I'm like, oh no, bless him. Sadly, I have no. Oh, that's smart. Well, also, oh, we're coming up on the bobsled thing, and one of the one of the stunt people got killed. Yes, they did. What? And which, oh, wow. which, which was yeah. written about at the time, and then suddenly everybody acted as if it never happened. But if you listen to, I think one of the ex, the commentaries or features, they they vaguely mention somebody vaguely says it in passing, like these things are always dangerous, and they change the subject. Oof. So it was a very dark moment though for the production. I know it hit mm-hmm. morale somewhat um, at the time. It wasn't a, yeah, that's never was it the grenade and, explosion it, bit. Nor but, yeah. Oh, God. Well, who knew? And there's John Glenn back to the Bob Slays mm. that probably got him this gig. Which I did not know until recently. Apparently, on Majesty's, Cubby Broccoli went down on the bobsled. He wanted to. Like, and, are you sure you want to go and do this? Yeah, yeah, I want to go. And everyone's going, oh my God. Well, okay. And they're like crossing their fingers, make sure he gets down okay. And he did, of course. But, uh, Anyway, it has nothing to do with this movie, but still. And th- it's a very sporty film, this one. It feels like it's sponsored <laughs> right. by JD Sports. There's a lot of different sports. You never see Bond sort of, I don't know, getting involved mm. with rugby or football. It's- <laughs> Good Roger Moore Ooh, in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, probably it- his most exertion in the film is doing the sound effects, the dub overs. <laughs> 
I, 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 I want to do a super cut of so, all of Roger's back projection chase yeah. moments where he's just like winking to somebody or waving to somebody through his seven films. But but also his uh, his uh, voiceovers and stuff. Right. Just, uh, string them all together. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I forgot that he throws the bike. That's amazing. <laughs> so good. I can't get you. Just take the bike. <laughs> yeah. How many people have been killed? How many agents have been killed by falling bikes? I don't think as many. Oh, I just thought us. Never mind. It's another movie. Forget it. Oh. Somebody else who threw a bike. Um, so Lotuses must have been standard issue at this point. <laughs> I love how happy Luigi is at being left alone in the car. He's just like rubbing his hands like, oh, well, yeah, it's well, nice also, and warm in here. Bond tells him, don't press any buttons. Like, oh, it's like, you do, do you not trust a trained agent to not, not <laughs> fire the missiles or whatever? Wouldn't a better way of killing Luigi be for just someone to ram a pencil into the windscreen right. and can't blow up? Wouldn't that be an easy way of doing it? So I never understood this bit where all of a sudden a bunch of hockey players come to kill Bond. Hmm. And there's somebody sitting there keeping they're from, score. They're from the East German team. <laughs> yeah, but they're Obviously. keeping score on the buzzers. And then it's like, He's who sets this up? The scorekeeper isn't to paying attention. It's like, oh, eh, okay. Eh, okay, I got to hit the button again. <laughs> nice. Anyway, so is, is it the idea that Christatos has set this up? Knowing she would be there, knowing he would come... Well, in, in the deleted scenes, it's revealed that one of these guys is Charles Dance, isn't it? Like, we yes, don't see it yes. in the final film, but yeah. so I guess it would be, yeah, Christatos, yeah, I guess. They're pretending to be players who are practicing so they can get at Bond. It's, um, they're not real hockey players, they're more of, you know, yeah, yeah, assassins, yeah. but and, um, a a those hockey fans among us. Yeah. Yes, for those hockey fans, fans of us, these were Montreal Canadiens and Toronto Maple Leaf uniforms yeah! that they just took. They just they just took the logos off them. Right. Canadians representing in a way that's not incompetent fully. Well, <laughs> partially only. Partially not incompetent, but uh, I've, I have had the pleasure of driving a Zamboni, and um, they are, they're a lot of fun. Yeah, I did that oh, at the Vancouver Canucks. Luigi got killed. We can check off that box. Uh, sacrificial lamb. But what does this even achieve? Like, really? Like, I mean, normally the sacrificial lamb is the character to sort of inspire Bond to sort of like go on and with his mission, and now it's personal and all that kind of stuff. Here, it's like he was in yeah. one scene oh, because because they're it's... trying to uh, frame Columbo by yeah. putting in the the oh the of gun. course yeah that's why. But it's yeah, not uh, obvious yeah, until that moment. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Luigi is not nearly as good a uh, sacrificial lamb as um, VJ is. And, uh, mm. Oh, VJ. Uh, I'm still sad about that. <laughs> yeah. See what I mean? I'm uh, Lisa just proved my point. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> so, so this is the Bond trope of walking with the Bond girl through a market scene. Mm. But it's also an attempt uh, to kind of give you a sense of place. Yes. I mean, because we talked before about how some Bond films go from place to place to place. You don't really feel like you're anywhere. And this sequence, it's like a 
chance to slow up a bit, um, kind of get a feel for the location. Yeah. Another example, they, they tried to kind of do this at the end of Spe- in Inspector, and it didn't work. Mm. With Bond and Madeline walking through Morocco. Yeah, it, it, it was because it was far too quick. The the sequence yeah. was just, mm. you know, I don't know, but like, give, it's just a hand. It's, it's not often we say that something Inspector was too brief. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, <laughs> it's true. I, I, I was about to. I was about to say, in movie making in general, not just the Bond series, um, there's less and less of like taking a breath of having, Mm -hmm. you know, you have like a tense scene and then like you let up for a while and then you go into a tense scene and all that. Now, maybe it's ADD, whatever, you know, movies are expected to go from tense and tense to tense, just, you know, without let up. Yeah, we we talked earlier about like this following Majesties in terms of like Glenn and stuff. I know Phil Nabil's mentioned that he programmed a double feature with Majesties leading into Euros only, but here we've got a very similar costume for Bond with the blue blazer talking to the leading lady in a mm. quiet moment in the gardens of somewhere. I mean, there's a lot of motifs from that film in this. Mm. Well, and and if you're and if you're John Glenn, you can't assume they're going to invite you back to be the director. He ended up doing five in a row, as we mentioned. But like, so if you've been promoted to be the director, you know, you're, and you don't know if you're coming back, you're going to like play up everything you've got. And of course, Majesties was one of his, you know, one of his big experiences with the Bond series before he became director. So, yeah. You mentioned LWT Bond, Mark, this, this scene here is right up there, I think. In this Sunday afternoon ITV drama, off-putting, like it, it's quite jarring going from the Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, who have just proper like filmic, like there's something the the texture of the celluloid. I don't know if they just used the cheaper film stock from this film onwards, or if just the cinematography wasn't as good or whatever. But I really do feel that John Glenn films feel they have a TV quality to them that I, mm-hmm, I think it's a mm-hmm. shame that the series loses that after The Smile of Me and Moonraker, which are just so glossy and big screen. I know it wasn't Vista Vision, but it just has that kind of quality to it. Well, also yeah. keep in mind that, you know, over time they kept coming up with new and newer and newer film stocks where you didn't need as much lighting. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, that first shows up shows up way back in the 50s for crying out loud i mean if you look at movies in the 70s versus the 50s it's a big change and so um by this time and we're at the start of the 80s you know you don't need nearly as much lighting to light Mm. scenes so that some of it may be physical and technology Uh, Mm. and some of it may be cheap i don't know but i i do know that you know movie making changed as film changed i just love the look of the lady to the right of that guy that lost just looking at him with disdain like you idiots just <laughs> <laughs> to, to support calvin's point though i i do actually feel the same way i feel like this again as somebody who admitted i didn't see my first bond film in the theater till casino royale i do feel as though moonraker was made for the big screen in sort of that blockbuster fashion. Whereas this to mm. me does strike me as more as like a made for TV sort of Sunday night bond with the family sort of movie. And I think it, it is the film stock. Maybe it's a bit of the lighting, but also like 
it feels downscaled to me versus mm. just, and maybe it has to do with the set design, you know, the big sets that used to come beforehand versus maybe location shooting or smaller set designs, but it just, it feels like a smaller scale well, film than Moonraker did to me. Well, just mm. a quick, a uh, bit quick of, a uh, quick bit of history. Moonraker was originally budgeted at $20 million and it came in at like 32 to 36 million. And because they, they thought they could bring it in for like a little bit more than the spy who loved me cost. And once they got into it, no, we can't do that. And I think that kind of scared broccoli <laughs> and others, probably United mm -hmm. Artists as well. And so it's like, okay, all right, we're not going to extend ourselves that much. And so I think that's part of why they reined things in and made it more down to earth. Mm. Which but is it was fine. a change. It was also but a change of director of photography, change of yes. production designer, change of you know second unit. Was, yeah, a lot of things figured into it, but you know budget definitely figured into it as well. So, oh, and here we uh, have Cassandra Harris, who was married at the time to Pierce Brosnan, and from this moment on, Pierce Brosnan name kept coming up as a potential future bond um which we talked about on a previous episode so like you know bond pierce brosnan's relationship with bond predated him ever becoming bond it sort of begins with this movie because mm. his wife is in it and that's like what more god what like 13 years before he was confirmed in the part something like that that's yeah, yeah that's crazy i mean to think yeah, like if five years before he was cast and then had to let it go. And then, yeah, mm. and then another nine years after that. Yeah. So, like I, I made the point then, you know, Brosnan lived with the whole Bond bubble for a long time, well beyond his actual tenure in the role. Mm -hmm. mm. And we're an hour in before we meet Topol. Julian Glover just ate nothing off his fork then. I've only just noticed. Right. There's nothing on his fork. If you ever yeah. like watch carefully, they hardly eat anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like in the in the Fleming novels, of course, like you have whole chapters devoted eating. It's like, you know, <laughs> but, that's, but that's not very cinematic. Mm. They had a thing on one of the most recent Bachelor or Bachelorette or Bachelor in Paradise uh, shows where a, a person actually sat down and tried to start eating the meal that they were supposed to have sitting for one of their dates. And the person's like, you're never, you're not supposed to eat the meal. It's there for show. And just, <laughs> and yeah. And, and it caught a lot of flack, like, ew, why would you do that? And I, and I think there's this expectation that people are really eating the products that are there. Mm. And especially when you're taking, doing multiple takes, you know how full you'd be. Right. So Yeah. yeah. I always thought she had short hair. I'm just noticing now that it's actually long hair twisted back. She's like an early precursor to Maud Adams, actually. I always feel it's like they were almost doing a, an octopusy uh, mm. trial run. Even to the um, sari type that. dress, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, for, for some reason, when you said Maud Adams there, I, I, I thought you were saying Morticia Adams. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Ken Adams family. That's the very <laughs> Here we are back at Pinewood with somebody randomly moving a flashlight in the background. 
And I love all this. I love all his fictional background as writing a novel about smugglers. And I, I think it's there's a there's a or t- it gets overused, particularly in Roger's film for obvious reasons. But there's real autumnal grace to him and her in these scenes, which I think they they did echo and build yeah, upon. That, that, that's, that's something and some from the from the the short. I was story. about to say. And, oh, yeah. Sorry, David but, just said my point. Yeah, some uh, of that's taken right. directly from the short story. Yes. Hmm. Sorry. Beat you to it. As a northerner, I've always um, hated how her accent slips out here, or, or, more, or rather the performance of the accent. It's a little bit Daphne from Frasier, her that's Manchester right. accent. <laughs> well, she's more, she is more Manchester than Liverpool, which went close. Liverpool, but no, no, that was Manchester. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it's interesting that you say that because I can't really tell the difference. Uh, it's only because well, I'm a fair, northerner. Neither. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Northerners don't do well in bomb films. They usually get killed the morning after. <laughs> yeah. uh, northern women. Yeah. In Octopus. Uh, Ruby Bart, in uh, Octopussy, Roger Moore's um, cover is uh, a, a man from Leeds, and I'm always so disappointed that we never <laughs> got Roger Moore doing his Leeds accent. I would have loved that. <laughs> yeah, that could have been a furniture shop tie-in, sort of <laughs> end peel type way. He could have done like an Allied carpets. And- yes, with um, <laughs> Eastern European uh, flair on the <laughs> furniture. So we played this music at our wedding. I love this Bill Conti "Take Me Home" track. Mm. Um, so, oh no, it's actually played over the beach scene, um, but I, I I love it. So we, we played it. It's one of our favourite Bond cues. The hell is that red and black striped mm-hmm. dressing robe about? I've only just noticed that now. It's, Columbo. it it's Columbo's robe. Yeah. Oh, he cool. makes he makes a comment about the owner of this. Uh, yeah. Oh yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Columbo is like a rather uh, uh, understanding fellow, I guess. <laughs> I don't know why Peter Falk wasn't playing him, but I didn't know there was a second Columbo. It's a very bad actor. <laughs> yeah, Google Images gets really confused when you look for Columbo. Yeah. Uh, beautiful now I don't understand this. If, if you want in the morning you can take my car I'm never going to see you again but by all means take my car right. <laughs> I'll find it wherever it is yeah yeah so sadly her stunt double here gets pretty badly injured in the filming of this there's there's pretty there's quite a few accidents on this film oh god but this is you know we were talking the other week about brutal moments of Roger's tenure that people forget this yes. is um, one. This is yeah. this is one. Yeah, mm. yeah. Right. The wigs yeah. on the stunt drivers are somewhat unconvincing. But yeah. uh, just go, just walk up where the cars can't drive. It's like Bond. Um, in, in all films, they don't never do that. They just carry on walking on the sand bit where the car can get you. Yeah. Bond spends too much time shooting at the tires. He's shooting at their heads. Um. But um, I mean, while while this. This whole scene is inspired by the the, the book again. Uh, it, it's quite it, it's yeah. quite reminiscent of On a Majesty's Secret Service as well, isn't it? Mm, mm. Mm. I like the shots through the windshield, by the way, especially the first one where you're seeing the driver's perspective and it's sort of the shaky, and yeah. it really sort of shows the panic that they're going through. It's brutal, and mm-hmm. it's all one take as well. That cut, it's not that that. Hit is not made on the car; it's made in in the frame. So Melina leaves it until the. Oh, sorry, Melina's Columbo's men leave it until then to help out. But that's <laughs> fine. Mm. You actually see them on their rubber dinghy um, in the in the establishing shot. 
mm. the sequence. And we like you. We saved your life, but we're going to hit you over the head anyway to just, you know, do this stupid reveal. <laughs> how many, I mean, when you think about it, how many times has he been knocked unconscious? And we talk a lot about football players and like the lasting impacts of having massive concussions over and over again. I just wonder right. like the, the impact on James Bond, he's hit all the time. He also drinks oh. a ton of alcohol. <laughs> how does, I don't know how he does think- it. Oh, Bond's, a prime, got issues. Bond's a prime candidate for CTE, no question. Yeah. <laughs> Test his brain. I, I love like the John McEnroe's in this. John McEnroe's. <laughs> a map. I love rod, big maps. That, that blue again. Hmm. So um, just as an aside, in the uh, pre-internet days, keeping track of a film was like a lot harder than it is now. Mm-hmm. And and so like variety, which I could see I could get at a newsstand um, they had um, they would have a, a digest, a list of movies in production. So I knew there was some doubt whether Roger Moore was coming back, but then he was coming back. Okay, that's fine. And then the film began and so in the variety list of the film it would have like the major crew members, writer, producer, director, and the main cast members. So it was like, that was the first time I found out, oh, Richard Maybaum's back. Oh, and this Michael Wilson guy, whoever he is, he's he's writing it with the Maybaum. Um, at this point, I didn't even know that uh, Michael Wilson was Broccoli's stepson. <laughs> um, and so it's like, oh, I wonder how this is going to turn out. And I saw, oh, Topol's in it. Is he the villain? I don't know. There, there was like very little information about the film, at least that I could find as it was being made. So, Yeah, well, keeping who the villain is vague has kind of been a thing lately, hasn't it? Yeah. Well, I, I'll say again in, in the book that there was a – uh, the the villain and the ally were unknown, and they uh, their roles were kind of reversed to be, to begin with. So yeah. it's it's uh, I'd say again, it comes from the book. Yeah. So is Bond very trusting here, or is he just seeing how this is going to work out? I don't think he's trusting yet. Well, he turned down a drink. <laughs> you don't trust a guy if you're not going to take his drink. My dad always says, never trust a man who won't share a drink or a beer with you. So okay. that's, a, that's my dad's wisdom for you. <laughs> Life advice. Peter Lamont does love love a filing cabinet, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> he should have guessed. So this is another little uh, sequence from the books, right, David? Yep. The That's right, yeah. Hero- heroin warehouse raid. Um, sadly, like very few production stills exist from this whole sequence. But I don't know how you, well, I was going to say, you think 
Stacey Sutton getting crept up on by an airship's bad. I mean, here they get crept up on by a sailing boat full of men. <laughs> <laughs> this was the precursor to Stacey Sutton. <laughs> and everybody conveniently wears colors depending on which side they're on. So that helps. Super helpful for us. I love there's a bit coming up where Bond just drops a piece of completely seemingly irrelevant information about the depth that something can sink to. He goes like, well, this is good for 300 feet or something. It's like, yeah, that's, that's not going to come up later. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's Bond, ever the expert. (laughs) He'd be awful to have round to dinner, wouldn't he? (laughs) <laughs> well first he'd criticize your choice of drink and yeah. menu i'm sure peter cook wears Locke's sort of silvery leather jacket i'm sure he wears it in supergirl i've seen that somewhere before that, that slightly uh sort of blake seven right. cut there I think he was in Blake Seven. Michael Gothard, who's quite a tragic soul ultimately, but he did a he lot was. of those sci-fi. Yes, shows. he was. Yeah. I was thinking Bond at dinner. He would say something like, oh, "I prefer the fifty-three myself." Well, Bond, I can't afford the fifty-three, so you're gonna have to. Make, <laughs> you're gonna have to make. You're gonna have to make do with the ninety-five. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, our our house doesn't actually have a year, so uh, he'd he'd really turn huh? his nose up at it. <laughs> Oh, and Bond knows how what uh, heroin tastes like. Oh, gee, yeah. Bond, how do you know that? How much heroin do you uh, consume? If it was the '89, you were expecting it. Yeah, he's <laughs> <laughs> gonna be off his tits for the rest of the film. <laughs> Although Dalton does that, Living Daylights, they both they, they love to get a little, just a little sample in, just to yeah. keep them going. Just, yeah, just sort of break the day up a bit. I wonder how MI6 does on their annual drug testing. Cause it's like, well, I was, on, I was on a mission recently and, oh yeah, you had to try it. Yeah. I just had to try it. Well, sort of Dalton's covered in cocaine by the end of last <laughs> right. kill. He's sort of, yeah. sort of like all the sniffer dogs yeah. in the airport won't yeah. leave him alone. Yeah. He wasn't able to fly for like six months. He kept triggering all the alarms. Yeah. Um, side note, I once traveled with a guy who worked on, um, um, extreme home edition makeover show in the States, whatever that thing's called, where they basically um, knock down your house and build it again. And they actually used demolition stuff. And um, I was with them in the line at security at the airport and everything went off. Alarms, dogs came out, TSA, because oh. he had like traces of explosives. Oh. <laughs> So, yeah, I always on. have the dog sit by my feet, but then I've been in San Francisco for three weeks and they're like, it's fine. We know we know the differences between these things. <laughs> but there was, they often, in San Francisco, they're always training the drugs dogs. So they end up sort of just circling anyone random. And I'm like, go away. <laughs> and here we go. This is another sequence where we go from dusk to night to daylight in five minutes. Mm. 
It's like, how long does it take Roger Moore to run well, up those steps? I was about to say, those <laughs> steps, like at the pace he's running, it might be more than five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel like re- redoing the Foley on this sequence one day, where he's just wheezing and coughing. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great, Trust. there's a, someone that does that on YouTube, and they've taken like Madonna's recent videos, and they just take out all the vocals and all the music and just have her like, uh, squeaks uh, and doing all of this. They, they are just hilarious. I think Roger could comedy benefit from a moment like that. Look, looking at those steps, it would take me at least a half hour, if not yeah. longer. <laughs> is that actually Roger Moore running up them, or is that a stunt double? I can't quite tell. It looks like him. Yeah. I think it's Pierce Brosnan. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, we're going to train you out on this scene. <laughs> Here we are. Now it's daylight. Yay. Here we go. Iconic Moore moment. Yes, it is. And, and uh, mm. uh, rightly so. And what right. he didn't like at all. So. Right. Mm. But here's the difference. He like you know, he had the chance to register his disagreement and they took it into account. They said, Well, Roger, we still want you to do it. And he did it. Yeah. Because one of the criticisms I've seen about uh, Roger Moore films, this one guy, this is on Facebook, said, Oh, they oh, they I'm trying to think of the word. Basically, they said they just in, indulged him. They indulged him. And I said, wait a minute. Whoa. Right. Remember For Your Eyes Only? He didn't want to do it, but they said do it. And he did it. So, like, tell me how mm. they indulged him. Mm. And, and, you know, th- that this is one public example. There's probably dozens of others that were never retold. Right. Mm. And and part of the reason this got retold, because you had a new director and they were wanting to emphasize the change in direction. Yeah, so, and yeah. change in tone here. The car does not explode. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, see if you can tell the difference now between actual underwater shots and hair dryers. I see, have to I- admit, the first time I saw it, I couldn't tell the difference. I didn't even mm. realize it. I was going to say the same thing. I'm completely with you, Bill. I, it was yeah, some time later that I realized, and now that I know it, it's like it's obvious. But what like, do you mean hair dryers? I don't understand. Well, Terrible she, bouquet. she could not dive underwater, or at least yeah, not so, that deep. And no. so these these close shots of of Roger Moore and, and Melina, they are, you know, they're in a studio and they're with hair dryers and simulating bubbles and stuff, but it's they're not underwater. No, slow motion cameras. Yeah. Yeah, she had sinus problems or something, and yeah. uh, she couldn't uh, do anything yeah. underwater. Yeah. So they had to fake it all. And in the comic book adaptation, they explain why she leaves the tank because essentially, like, you always want to have a spare down there when you're doing a long term project. So, you know, so she left the tank. Mm. Um, but there's no such explanation in the film. And so I, I remember people saying, why does she do that? Huh? Because mm. if they don't, they'll die. But. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but there was an attempt to explain it in the comic book adaptation got to dig roger's lemoncello shirt here i quite like it actually i like his whole outfit here never met a collar too big <laughs> <laughs> absolutely no romantic chemistry between these two at all is there i and, and, and I'm, i kind of like that I guess mm-hmm. um, I'm just disappointed that they end up romantically involved at the end. But compared to like Lois Childs um, in Moonraker and Maud Adams in Octopussy, that I, I really get that sort of oh yeah, there is some kind of romantic sexual chemistry brewing here. Here, there's just like none of it. 
Well, because of her father's you know history with the Triana and what he was doing, it's almost like they're both on the spy game together. It's almost w- working colleagues. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's just it's just jarring for more coming off of Moonraker where him and Holly are technically on the same side investigating right. the same sort of things and yet he's just taking every opportunity he can to sort of flirt with her and, and undermine her in or, many ways. I remember way back um, oh, at the scene where they're in the sleigh and the, the mm-hmm. driver's going, Amore, Amore. I guess he's like trying to sell us that eventually they're going to get together, audience. Mm. Trust me. Yeah, you know, it's like it, it's kind of it's kind of an unnecessary add-on, but uh, and I think it draws attention to the fact that you know these types of relationships in the Bond films, while they're expected, they do come across as forced. So I think this is a good example. I think Tomorrow Never Dies is a good example, and yet there are other films where a connection is really stressed. So I'm thinking about uh, The Living Daylights is a really good example where I buy into the love of that film and the Mm. connection that's been developed throughout. And I I think it just raises that question of, is it always necessary that if you have a man and a woman working together that they're just gonna sleep together? And um, it doesn't always happen that way. And we talked last week about Quantum of Solace when it didn't happen and how it was kind of refreshing. Like, okay, we went on this revenge quest, we got stuff done, and now we're going to move our our separate ways. And maybe they couldn't do it in 1981, but I like that it it doesn't always have to be that way. Mm. Uh, Real quick, this mini sub uh, is in the custody of the Ian Fleming Foundation. Um. It's probably been the Bond in Motion exhibit at one time or another, but I've seen it separate from that. Hmm. I always forget the sequences in this film. I yeah. forget that they actually go to the St. George. The, the guy in the the guy in the diving suit mm. is pretty creepy. Yeah, yeah. But he, yeah what's this? What's that, that about? You never really see him again, or maybe we do and just don't register. What the? I missed it watching it this time. We saw the big diving suit back yes. in the sequence we just uh, just saw so yeah we that was sort of a preview of this sequence and we have this uh, little bit of exposition about how they're so deep um they have to have this special mix and they only have mm-hmm. six or seven minutes whatever it is so we've got a ticking clock Mm-hmm. Uh, and, then, and then they have a literal ticking clock in the sequence later yes. on where they attach the bomb to the guy right right um, I, I do love it when Roger says, you know, conserve oxygen, only speak when necessary. And then in the next sequence, he's just cracking one-liners. <laughs> <laughs> well, I told yeah. you to conserve ox- oxygen, right. not me. Actually, um, and then later there's the guy who comes in in the other mini-sub, isn't there? That's Again, what I mean. He's the super creep, that oh, guy. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I thought we were talking about the guy in the in the suit. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's strange that there are two guys who come in with relatively memorable sort of well, and and also the crew of uh, Bond and Molina's uh, yacht is being killed off screen. Yeah. It's 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 mentioned very in passing, but yes, yeah. there's there's some butchery happening, yeah. unbeknownst to us. As this, Kriegler uh, still hasn't found a shirt. Well, he's got to show off his pecs, you know. <laughs> it's it's very calendar henchman. I think that I feel there's a henchman <laughs> calendar in the works, like a sixtieth anniversary henchman. Getting their uh, tats out for the girls and boys. That needs to happen, Mark. Damn I've, it. I've had conversations. <laughs> I've had conversations with a few others who said, "Why are we? Why is this not happening?" And it usually comes down to taste and decency. <laughs> <laughs>
And yet we have a Bond Girls calendar every year. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna push. I'm gonna push for a neat cross centerfold, or yeah, or a stamper. Red Grant relaxing at home on a wicker chair, sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Can Benicio del Toro be October? That's my birthday month. I like. I, I no, love, it's love coming how out now. Melinda. Uh, uh, Carolyn Bouquet actually cringes in that shot there when he does his little quip. Look at the red phone being elevated there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Google let Google left it there. Just just left it hanging, literally. Oh, Roger Moore's skin doesn't look good when it's sort of uh, right. pressed in by that face mask. We need red light. Where's the red light? <laughs> Gosh, the yeah, secret the- room is to the left. So we can't really see Carol Bouquet's face, which is quite a directing flaw, but is that because it probably wasn't her because she couldn't do the, the yeah. underwater stuff? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, she, we see her eyes on the close-up shots, and that's it's Jill it. Bennett. It's Jill Bennett. She she stepped in, but it oh, is but- pretty horrific to see all of these. You know, oftentimes mm. we don't see dead bodies in this type of way, right? Like we think, okay, the crew went down, or the crew is being murdered off screen, but to actually see them still there, floating around, and having you know Bond and and Melina have to like come in, in contact with them. I think that's just an interesting component to show that like there are sacrifices that, you know, had to be made and that there are consequences for this device getting into the wrong hands. I like that they, that they make, that they show that it is dire by people dying. That, that evokes a uh, thunderball. Um, I'm thinking more of the novel than the, uh, the movie, but uh the Fleming description of Bond diving to the plane is like really eerie and very, in some ways, disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the movie probably doesn't capture that quite as well as uh, Fleming's prose does. But And Bond snips the wires just in time for the bad guy to come and try and take the ATAC away. But... Um, <laughs> They do a whole Jaws thing about eight years too late with the sort of POV and the breathing right. and everything. It's just missing and the some dead, music. The dead bodies and suddenly coming out of hatches and things. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, hadn't occurred to me, but yeah. Well, there I mean, if, if Spielberg was ever going to do a Star uh, uh, Bond film, this was possibly the, the era where, where it could have happened because he, mm. you know, the, 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 it was his. It was always his notion, no one else's. But I was mm. thinking, if he was ever going to do one, it would be Furies only, because mm. after that, he sort of went stratospheric. Well, yeah. I've I've said actually, if if um, he were to do one, actually, the seventies would have been the best time when he was an up and coming director. Um, I mentioned this before. He directed a Columbo episode, mm-hmm. like Murder very early book. on. Yeah. yeah, and it's like it's you know it's you can tell. I once showed it to a friend of mine. Said, you know, the direction kind of draws attention to itself, which is mm. like, yes, it's like he's trying to show everybody. Yes, I can be a big time movie director with this, and it's a great episode. It's a wonderful mm. episode, and I, I, I think the uh, Spielberg of the early to mid seventies would have been great for Bond mm. after he became. A phenomenon, probably not so much. 
Mm. Um, he knows his think, Bond as well. I mean, he's a big yeah. fan of a lot of cinema, but he's he knows. I think um, Diamonds Are Forever is his favorite opening title sequence of ever any movie. Huh? He just went down in my estimation. Yeah. <laughs> All the ones. Yeah. Big Charles well, Gray fan. <laughs> Well, Diamonds Are Forever was also the uh, first bot, first movie ever seen by oh, what's his name, Adam Sandler. Hmm. Uh, it's there was like so on one Oscars telecast, there were like different actors. What's the first movie you ever saw on Adam Sandler? First movie I ever saw was Diamonds Are Forever, <laughs> and like I uh, like yeah, so like all the Bond fans on social media going wah. <laughs> <laughs> One more strike against diamonds are forever. <laughs> this is a pretty tense sequence, all in all. Mm-hmm. Right, and Bond does not come out of it unscathed. He's getting his uh, bleeding there, which yeah. like Bond rarely bled up until this movie. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. underwater teehee. <laughs> <laughs> I just anytime you have to put an action sequence underwater, it's just oh, it just slows it down so much. I'm one David. of the people that doesn't think Thunderball <laughs> slows down in the underwater sequence. I don't feel it mm. does. It was just a different way of you know telling drama. In six mm. seconds, he gets out. <laughs> See, he's fast. He's not slow. <laughs> I love yeah. how it's clear they shared the stuntmen with Who Dares Wins. They're all slightly Lewis right. Collins looking. That's with, right. their, <laughs> with their slightly sort of action man tight curls and uh, again the the uh, the blue commando sweaters. That that explosion was actually pretty good. Pretty well done. Mm-hmm. And you think they're right. getting away. And she is running out of uh, air. Mm-hmm. Uh, so despite the fact he did all the talking, she's running out of air first. But um, <laughs> it was all the exasperation at the bad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those yeah. took a lot of oxygen for her to do. Well, and Bond's mm-hmm. used to conserving his breath because he does all these explanations because he is ever the expert. Um <laughs> Oh, and now, and now, just when you think everything's great, here comes another sub coming at their sub. Yes, this is the kind of guy you didn't want to check his browser history. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He's looking at sort of protege ice dancers all the he's, time. He's, he's up there with Clive from License to Kill for me. I've like instantly, oh, God. Yeah. Well, you can take the meddings out of Thunderbirds, but you can't take the Thunderbirds out of meddings. <laughs> and I love it for this. I love all the slightly kooky uh, craft design here. I just wish it was happening faster. Oh. So, so, so. Uh. <laughs> I could just see you're like, oh, oh no. <laughs> you have a, do you have a stopwatch going, Calvin? <laughs> uh, no, it's I, I, I do have a thing about action sequences underwater. I just I find it very hard to be exhilarated by such th- like watching a claw slowly snip a wire. Yeah. You must have hated Titanic. You must. Have- <laughs> How did you guess? <laughs> it's the only thing that lets it down. Yeah, I, I, I think they've got a they've, they've got a case against the submarine designer who put all of their like 
essential life um, pipes, tubes, electrical cables on the outside? Yes. But to be honest, it was probably not meant to uh, uh, withstand an attack by an, an enemy sub. It was probably... I'm presuming we're using... The, I presume we're using the real uh, crunching metal sound effect that the uh, Bond uh, Foley right. suitcase uses quite uh, yeah. copiously. That guy kind of looks like Boris. Yeah. yeah. Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Wrong Boris. Boris, uh, bad enough. Every time someone uh, says um, Boris now, I hate it for that. Like, what, Johnson? Oh, sorry, yes. Oh, yeah, no, whoops, no. No. Boris Again, and though, Natasha. There's a real prime color thing here the yellows, the reds, the blues. It's There's a real, I think it's, it's probably more of an 80s thing than anything. The sort of prime color 80s are about to explode. But everything's yellow in this underwater sequence. There's actually a lot we've noticed in a lot of films. There's a lot of yellow, whether it's Moonraker mm -hmm. and all the suits yeah. are in yellow. Uh -huh. And usually like gear is in yellow, anything construction. Like it's just it's it's a, it's a very it pops a lot. And maybe it's based on like the way that it's being used. So underwater, you need to make sure you can capture the image. So mm. we'll have oh, yellow. Yes. Yep. It. Yep. But it, it's used note. a lot. It's pretty pronounced across a lot of Bond films because it's just it's an uncommon color. People just don't dress in yellow and have mm. yellow cars and yellow everything. Now, Bond today always gets, you know, the, the, the crap kicked out of him for the product placement and the tie-ins and the merch deals. But I, what I love about this is no one ever notices the Fred Perry in this scene. I'm mm -hmm. a big Fred Perry fan. I was like, oh, my God, he's got Fred Perry. And it is hmm. throughout all the films. It's there in Doctor No Onwards. Um. A lot of movies, of course, depend on product placement mm. now. And, um, oh, and I, I said this before, I spent most of my um, adult career covering the auto industry. And mm. as, a, as a result, every time I see a movie, I can't help but think, oh, this is a BMW movie. Oh, this is mm. an Audi movie. Oh, this is, you know, because, I, you know, it's just, it's, if, once you've seen it, once you notice it, um, you can't unnotice it. Like, yeah, but uh, it's, Bond's, it's Bond's world, though. It's 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 it was Fleming's world. He likes right. dropping little names. It's part of Bond. I never have a problem. It sometimes, you know, when we literally sort of Truman show a vodka into or never dies to say, ah, look, it's right. Smirnoff one. Sometimes it can get a little Truman show like, but otherwise, it's it's part of Bond's accoutrement. You know, well, no, I, I was just going to say, my late father, when he when he was in college, he had a part time job as a projectionist at a at a drive in, and so I remember later he told me he had trouble going to movies because when he was a projector, when he was doing that job, he saw the movie so many times, each mm -hmm. one, he knew how to spot the flaws, and mm -hmm. like I, I he could he, he, I mean, if he really liked a movie, he would go see it, but he didn't mm -hmm. see a lot, and. You know, he knew the tricks yeah. and, you know, oh, yeah. here's a here's a cowboy wearing a wristwatch, mm. Mm. Uh, yeah. that kind of stuff. And here's George Leach in one of his few appearances, yeah. actually, as a character. Um, but, Lisa, can I um, cut in with something here about the presentation? Often the presentation of, of, of uh, guys, you know, topless guys in Bond films, often is that slightly breathing in Rob, Robert Mitchum motif. But there's a real sexuality about Kriegler. It's not just because I've had half a glass of wine. He's got it, – it, it's something quite – heart about him and the bond films didn't always do that they still don't do it i 
well, apart from Craig. But I'm just kind of interested. I mean, that'll be another discussion for another time. But the presentation of men and the topless man, which Craig has brought up a lot in the in the films. Now our gaze is on him rather than you know Gilson John or anyone else. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I noticed – are you talking about the guy with the short shorts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just – I'm obsessed by the guy in the short shorts. I will will put that out there. But <laughs> I, but it's it's a sort of a beat that Bond doesn't often do because we're st- – even now or even in 81, we're still in that world of bikinis and poolside uh, Valerie Leons. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that especially when we compare then his body and the way that he's being represented to actually Roger Moore in this film. So we don't have Roger Moore being topless in this film. We don't have his body being placed on display. And then you had that shot that went from the the man's legs to the short shorts to mm, his mm. muscular chest and upwards. Mm. That's only, as you mentioned, a look that comes really full circle with Daniel Craig coming Mm. later on and even when we're talking about bodies and muscular bodies i'm thinking of am i thinking red grant and having Mm -hmm. his Mm -hmm. body placed on display and this notion that uh people who work for the villains are supposed to be tanned and muscular and strong but there's also a sexual aspect to them that's never fulfilled they're not necessarily some of them are but some of them aren't shown with love interests or Mm. or that they're not vying for the affections of of bond's love interest Oh. And so what then could that possibly mean having these beautiful men with their bodies on display and yet they're not the primary sexual mm. subjects in the well, film? Well, yeah, it's worth Real- remembering though that Connery was a hot guy, you know, in the early days. He was not there. Bond is often uh, accused of sexism and I, I always personally think there's a difference between sexy and sexist. Yes, some of the tropes and the beats are not, you know, nothing that we would sort of endure now. But Bond, Connery particularly, and Lazenby as well, they they present, they, you know, the, the, the girls and the gay guys in the audiences also got their, um, got their Ursula Andresses as well. That, that always, always gets overlooked. Not that, Kriegler in this scene, just in his short shorts, is the, the epitome of uh, taking that back for male representation. But I always, I just find it's a curious little, literally second of uh, '80s Bond. Well, well, real quick, um, mm. there was there was a brief. Uh, there Sorry. was a brief uh, spy show in the fall of 1979 on U.S. television called "A Man Called Sloan," and it had a lot of Bond tropes. But in one episode, they did a parody on that whole take where. The evil mastermind was played by Edie Adams, and she was surrounded by all these Chippendale guys <laughs> in like bare chests and so yeah. forth. And it was like, I, I mean, I was one of the few people who watched a man called Sloan because it lasted all of 12 episodes. But uh, I, I thought that was a really funny take on the, mm. on the whole, you know, turning everything around uh, yeah. like that. Can I also make a comment? I know this is going to shift the conversation. Something I noticed a while ago, um, there was a very quick shot when they came out in the yellow jumpsuits where Melina Havelock, the hench person, came mm-hmm. with the knife. Yeah, and cut, yeah. cut her out. Yeah. Cut her out of it. And there are there's a lot even in, in – there are examples in Ian Fleming's novels um, about women being sort of stripped down. And I'm oh, trying don't. to think – I can't remember which novel it was, if, if it was Live and Let Die where solitaire is stripped down. Right. Um, and there's always sort of this, this notion of humiliating her – um, and having Bond somehow respond, and it's also sort of like it could, you know, be a suggestion of sexual attack, a sexual assault, and so there's like a no- kind of like a nod to that here, but there is no sort of further qualifier 
with it. Mm. And it's just sort of like those moments that get punctuated because they could have easily done it to bond or they didn't even have to do it at all. Um, but there's just sort of those moments here and there that lead you to question. And this is the moment where we see her in probably her greatest stage of undress with a mm-hmm. soaked white through uh, a see-through white t-shirt uh, with bikini bottoms. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I always sort of think about these moments where characters are, are, are stripped down because it's usually women who are stripped down against their will. And that's a very different type of presentation than say these male henchmen who are willingly and openly being presented or presenting their body. There's a different sort of autonomy with choosing how to represent yourself and showcasing your body versus these moments of being captured or you're being forced to wear a costume, um, that oftentimes happens with women on screen mm. well well real quick they did cut bond out of his yellow jumpsuit um no. also real you know we've now passed the key hauling sequence but part of it just before they got key hauled i thought it was one of roger moore's best moments in the film mm. where she says is this the end and and he says to her trying to reassure her, we're not dead yet right and the way he says it you know the line itself isn't that great the way he says it it's it's really yeah. good we're now up to the point where Bond's going in the church as originally written. Uh, M was going to be here uh, ah. instead of instead of Q. You know, so um, for, for all the flack that Dame Judi Dench gets, I mean, there she been, is. She's sweeping the, the tro- up the, yeah, she's, the, trope, she's, the trope of M just popping up on location was <laughs> yeah predates her. <laughs> Would Bernard they Lee did. have worn the uh, the fake beard? And the, uh, yes. The yes, no way, would've. really. Yeah. Yes, yes, he would. I've, <laughs> oh, I've, I've, I've got a copy of it. Um, wow. Yeah, no, it, no, that, no, that was the idea. This would, this would have been M in the, you know, dresses the priest. Hmm. We I also miss, we also miss you, Michael G. Wilson's cameo. I'm sorry, but uh, anyway. he'll have, he has four more here. So now we're about to have the final assault on uh, Cristado's uh, headquarters. Hmm. And we talked about how few resources Bond has. So let's count here. We've got Cristados, we've got her, we've got Bond, and four, what, four heavies. One, yeah. So, so yeah. Um, he apparently, and uh, Roger said this himself somewhere, so, you know. Um, can't can't defame yourself, can you? Um, apparently, he took a small amount of Valium on the days that he had to be on these rocks because <laughs> he was so scared of the heights climbing oh. sequence. Oh, wow. God. Of I course, the, binoc- the, binocul- the binoculars uh, cut to a shot of Pinewood, which is amazing yeah. that they do right. that. <laughs> we're, also, we're, we're also coming up on Rick Sylvester's second appearance in the series. Yeah, and I I would argue this was like riskier than even the parachute jump in uh, mm-hmm. the Spy Who Loved Me because at least in the Spy Who Loved Me he had a parachute like this is <laughs> uh, you know I I was talking to a friend at work at the time the movie came out and we said you know there was so much that could have gone wrong with that it's like yeah as we were chatting we both agreed and like i think that's the more impressive of the two of course with the spy love me it, it makes a bigger impression it's the end of the pre-titles it's union jack it's more emotional but as a stunt i you know this is perhaps more riskier 
for Rick Sylvester than yeah. his earlier appearance. Mm. Here's the Pinewood binoculars again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they had issues um, shooting the establishing shots and the location, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Because the monks that actually inhabited this place weren't happy about it being used in such a film, so they hung wash sheets out and towels and things. Am I right? Yeah, and then the uh, yes, yeah, no, that's a, right. A, a, yeah, a, a judge ruled that they only had the rights to protest within the building, not outside the building, because the outside ah. of the building belonged to the people of Greece. No, but in the so. in the making of featurette on the DVD, they they had some shots of them, yeah, <laughs> you know, hanging their laundry and stuff, <laughs> and and there was a shot of Roger Moore smoking a cigarette. Um, well, I don't know what's going on. Uh, I forget his exact <laughs> line, but he was kind of like, paid, right? Yeah, it's like I'm here. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Now uh, Christados wants to take uh, BB to uh, Cuba, which she is not uh, not for. Hmm. He is taking it to places with um, an escalation of difficulty of finding an ice rink. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Now I remember watching this the first time. I was, I'll we'll get to the PM later, but like, boy, by the time this sequence was ended, I was so tensed out. Like, mm-hmm. I had not been that tensed out watching a James Bond film for a long time. This whole mountain climbing thing and mm. all the all the near misses and stuff like, whoa, this was like, this was clearly, you knew this was a change in direction for the series. And in a lot of ways, it was kind of a one-time thing because yeah, there's a few, you know, one-liners here and there, but boy, this is like really serious for a lot of the movie and especially here. Can I ask a question? Was it prominent in films? I know after this to see there's movies that have a lot of mountain climbing and like you did, you got to put in like whatever the clip is in and then have your line. Was this common around this time or is this sort of the Bond films being like, and this is something different that Bond can do and it's not as common and other films have picked up on it after? No, there was before, there was a movie in the 70s called The Iger Sanction. Yes, Mark. That's John Glenn's Pigeon. Yeah. Um, the Iger Sanction, boy, that was, uh, it's an uneven movie, but the mountain climbing stuff, huh. it was like 73 or four. It, boy, that was, that was really tense. I was searching for some bits for this and, um, in the week and YouTube recommended a clip from a movie called Vertical Limit, which I think was like 2009 or something. And, um, mm. I watched like the five minute climbing sequence of it is hilariously badly green screened. <laughs> and, um, yeah, just search vertical limit rock climbing. It's just friggin' dreadful. I, I love the mission impossible films. I actually like what they've done the last two or three. They have become you know, big beasts of mainstream cinema, but what really personally bugs me is how everyone says, Oh, the stunt work in the mission impossible films is really like bond has to change his game. I'm like, no, uh, Tom Cruise climbing up, you know, a sort right. of um, dolomite mountain is not that new when you go to look at Roger Moore doing it right now in, in uh, yep. Eyes Only. And also, there's so much in the last uh, Mission Impossible film, and we're not here to talk about that, but I remember very easily finding, like, the, the toilet room brawl. Uh, okay, yep. right. And also the, uh, the sort of Hercules plane carrying um, yep. sacked goods in a net. And I'm like, hang on here. And, and, I, the, halo ju- and the halo jump. Yeah, it was the last Mission oh. Impossible film I thought 
hang on, guys. And it's when people say, oh, well, Bond needs to change his game. I'm like, no, no, no. There's Rick Sylvester's real life drop. Because it's beautifully choreographed, this sequence. And and I know he had safety devices and all that, but boy, that is, you know, Mm. that is really scary. And it's still scary almost 40 years later to watch Mm. it. Just and the I think real was, shots I, of, you know, like, I, I know it's the stuntman there, but it's, I think they slipped in a model shot as well, but um, possibly. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, but when Rick Sylvester drops and, you know, and once again, he gets a, t- he gets a credit in the main titles for it yeah. uh, and well-deserved, well-deserved. Mm, quite right. And, yeah. and for once, the back projection inserts aren't awful. Right. Yeah. So, so, so we've gone from laser beams and space shuttles to shoelaces, and I I, I love it for that because it still yeah. has the yeah. same sort of sense of scope and entertainment. And Bond killing the guy with what a python, throwing a python into his chest or whatever. Um, mm. Yeah, I just oh, I was like, <laughs> he falls again. Like oh mm. man, I. He's not happy yeah, like I said, I couldn't really believe I was in a Bond movie watching this in the first time I saw it. And it takes its time as well. I mean, I know it's a different era of action sequencing, but it it, it, it earns its jumps. You know, Mission Impossible mm. would have added five more jumpy moments by now. <laughs> well, they, they would have they would have they would have cut away from him falling to like three months later. Him going, oh yeah, we did all right. So. Yeah, and, and, okay. So he's so he had three points of contact. He's down to his last one, and this is right. like, oh, we are like taken. We're like, and there's this little shot, insert shot of the last thing coming out, and oh, it's oh. Now the thug is like kicking at the last thing that's in, uh, hitting at it with his gun. Uh. I actually, we were in Greece in 04. We weren't, we were like an hour's drive from this location. And there was like a, in the lobby of our hotel, there was go to it. Do you want to go and visit the monastery? I'm like, no, not really. Why would I want to, unless it's the one from Fury's Only. And I completely didn't realize it was the one from Fury's Only. Yeah. Uh, we could have gone up and done it, you know, sort of it, done everything. But the scenery there is yeah, a nice long drop. Also, awesome. real quick, the guy that Bond finally kills to save himself is the same guy who was driving Bond and, uh, Liesel to her house. Oh, um, never noticed oh, that before. Yeah, so he's you know we had established earlier he's one of Christados's men. Nice. So yeah, so like you know brings an end to that little circle of the plot. Mm. But I do like the way that, that again to to bring up the point that was already brought up. Like Moonraker is a lot of flash and technology and laser guns and all of this stuff. This is a very stripped down Bond film of shoelaces and it's sort of the monastery, which is not high tech and, um, you know, uh, stonework and there's a crossbow. This really is like a stripped down Bond film and that that he has to rely on his wits, his abilities, his skills. And of course, the people that he's working with also are very low tech. And I kind of like that. I kind of like that it's not just one type of of Bond film. And we, as we did die another day, we also criticized when you go too high tech, um, when you can go too far over the top, it does take away from James Bond and his abilities. So I think that this film does a really interesting job Mm. of maintaining a very specific, like, um, approach, tone, 
uh, when it comes to, and, it, and it's pretty co cohesive in that way that there aren't just, you know, super high tech moments that take us out of uh, the mode and the style of this film. Hmm. And it's also bringing in like Where Eagles Dare, which was yes. you know, populated by lots of uh, Bond stuntmen and cable cars. Uh, and... Yeah, that sort of sense of height and danger because, of, you know, when we're in space, we're quite high up when we're in space, but there's less danger there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think there's no less production thought in this film. There might be less production yeah. budget, but there's no less yeah. thinking and design on this film. Or as Clint Eastwood called it, Where Doubles Dare. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> as uh, his co-star was spent most of the time apparently uh, sleeping it off. So. Hmm. And I love that Roger looks like a vet from sort of the 50s here with his uh, gilet so and jumper. He's going to go check on the cows. He's going to check the cow. Yeah, they've got a breech birth <laughs> in one of the sheds. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of like sleeveless vest car jumper combo is something like my dad wears when he goes to the allotment. <laughs> mm. Oh, oh the guy's still alive after he's been shot with the crossbow. That's quite dark. Pull him up by it. Uh, <laughs> again, Lisa, going back to the crossbow thing, it's a bullet disappears, but the crossbow is there. It's like a, I think it's a real vicious killing tool. And I, I it's sort of a, yeah. sticks Ro there. Roger, Roger when he puts him in the chair, Roger pulls him, pushes him on the chair by it too. I mean, mm. it's like, and it's also yellow again. Just when we talk about the color yellow, mm -hmm. like it's, it's a color that's punctuated, and we're supposed to see it being wow. there. And I also just want to add to that: I always wow. enjoy it when the women in the film serve a purpose, other than just mm. kind of like being taken along for the ride. And well, I they do totally feel like help though, Bond here. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I like it when there's there's consequence to why they're there and they do something that is active and saving Bond, helping Bond, utilizing her skill, her knowledge. I just like I, I just like women to be able to do something to justify them being there. I like um, Melina tries to take care of him here. Hmm. I'm sorry I shot hmm. you. Uh, we'll just put this here. <laughs> Close to the heart, just not the heart. Yeah. I'm that good. It's strange that they are sort of like quite sort of, okay, we're going to leave you alive. We're not just going to shoot you, you know, muffle the gunshot well, or whatever. Hang on. Hold, hold, hold on. <laughs> well, yeah. But he still just knocked him out. He didn't yeah, he's him. alive. Yeah, what do you expect? You're a thug. You're lucky to be alive. Bond already had a He was fine. There's a lot of body warmers in here, but it was the early 80s. We all had mm -hmm. body warmers in the early 80s. She actually looks like Judy Dench, Jill Bennett. There's a sort of right gaming look about her. And she was almost like the Judy Dench of her day. She wasn't as famous or as known, but she was a very skilled uh, actress. And yeah, she, well, she, it's a similar casting. And uh, and Zero, what was I'm sorry, I, I named it earlier. I can't, Hell Below Zero, that mm, war yes. film she was in. Mm -hmm. That, of course, was one of the three with um, Alan Ladd that uh, – Helped yeah. get the uh, Irving Allen Albert Broccoli team on the map. Mm. It, it, yes, in the category of things you can't unsee, all the shots here are kind of like pointing at the ground because they built this at Pinewood. Hmm. So you never see the sky in any of these shots. Yeah. Again, just the lighting. There's just 
a set just reads as a set in this one and right. uh, some of the other films you could you know mistake i like I, i'm still not sure if i know if in moonraker they actually shot at a glass museum factory or not or if it is a set but here it's just like oh yeah you can tell your sets from your locations but isn't that like sort of back projection in a cast chase or scratches on vinyl it's, i i love all cinema for that it's like part of the artifice i mean yes it can get too jarring but well well in general my opinion um back projection works better in black and white than it does in color but mm. we don't make but we don't make black and white movies anymore pretty much so you're stuck with it I know, and I I know what you um what what you mean. It's not the suspension of disbelief. Like I don't have to believe that something was real in order to um, enjoy it. It is mm. just such a jarring. It's like sh- you know people have multiple shadows when it's supposed to be outside yeah. in certain yeah. places and that kind of thing. It's just it does take me out of it too much. Maybe it's just because I don't enjoy the story terribly much in this one. Um, I don't know. In case you didn't see the helipad, that's where it is. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Just the talk- guy nods, yes, yes. <laughs> Just talking Thank about you. the story, we are coming up to a bit where, like, if there is sort of like a character arc in this one, it does seem to be Bond sort of teaching Melina something about vengeance and oh mm-hmm. be prepared to dig two graves and all that kind of stuff and it's never gelled right with me it is it sort of feels like oh michael g wilson went to a screenwriting course and understands yeah. that characters <laughs> need to have some kind of progress when it's just so hypocritical when the whole start of the thing is bond getting vengeance on blofeld for the death of his wife and then here it's like melina yeah. you know i i think on a human level though i don't condone going and murdering, you know, other people. It's like, yeah, her parents were murdered, and I understand her uh, desire for vengeance, revenge against the man who ordered it. And here, it's like, oh no, you can't have that. But the film is going to kill that man anyway, and right. it's it's all kinds of muddled. Calvin, based on what you just said, the scene popped in my head. Hey, Dick, I just got back from my screenwriting class. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we talked about revenge as a motivation, and I want to tell you what it is. Maybe <laughs> nodding his head. Yeah, Michael. Right, Michael. Yeah. Got it, Michael. Thanks, yeah. Michael. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll take that whole Electra thing and never use it again. You know, uh, uh, Michael, did you know Electra is uh, actually like Greek mythology? It is. Really? <laughs> I thought it was in Daredevil comics. I was just reading one. Um, no, trust me, Mike. It's, Wait, it's well established. Uh, it's just no. It's not all right for you, Melina, to get your vengeance against this guy. But it's all right for Topple to have his revenge against this guy. A Topple with Topple, yes. Uh, yeah. Topple, especially when he saves my life doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's different. It's all right for me with Blofeld and Topple with Julian Glover, but you, no. No, no. Uh, we're both old men. Um, uh, it's just, it, I just, I, yeah, I, I, I really want to do an, a, a spoof cut where Julian Glover just pulls his face and that alien comes out like in the Doctor Who serial. <laughs> when you meet Julian City Glover. Of, City I, of Death. Yeah. When you meet Julian Glover, I never know what franchise to talk about. So I end up talking about nothing. Just talk about how was your cab ride here? Sort of like there's, sort of, like, there's nothing to, to pin it on. Mm. Yeah, I don't like that they took that moment away from her. Just wanted to throw it's that out there. really strange. Like, 
No, but it's Bond. It's a Bond film, though, so it should sort of be Bond doing it, especially in this era of detente. But it's not even him. It's Tupol that killed. Here we go. Slow motion. Slow motion (laughs) shot alert in the Bond franchise. Slow motion. Honest to God, real life uh, discussion. Someone said um, to me, said like, "Why are they like taking something from Daredevil comics?" I said. Uh, it's Electra's like <laughs> kind of goes back before Daredevil. Daredevil kind of stole that, and so mm-hmm. the movie, this movie, is stealing that too. It's you know mythologies in the public domain, so anybody who wants to take it can do so. I'm sorry to keep harping on about this, but what difference does it make? Like, if Melina had killed the guy, like I, I don't understand how this is a better sort of deal for her than because she. Because she is now suddenly more well-adjusted than she was five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the best I got. Sorry. Yeah. That's that's all I can say. It just feels like it's this idea that somehow it's going to change her, that if she has revenge and if she engages in this type of violence because she tried to save the other guy, like somehow like that's, mm. like she just committed murder, whereas mm. Bond is doing it for the service or the other guy's doing it for self-defense. I think they could have written in it a way where she could pull a domino and save Bond by shooting the spear. Mm, and, 30, and 39 years later, she is like the world's greatest archaeologist and right. has no has no uh, mental problems at all. <laughs> and here we go with, I think, was it Mark, you dubbed the phrase like opening night gag that they should just like, you know, use it, use it the premiere and then like take it out of the cut. Well, I, I, I will say this because up until this point, I was like so tense. I forgive this sequence probably more than I should, but Are I we got, talking I would Thatcher. Say, yes. We're talking yes. Thatcher. And so at this point, I was like ready to like laugh. I was, I was ready for a laugh because it had been so time. tense. Yeah, it's I. I mean, it is the equivalent of Alec Baldwin turning up as Trump at, in sort of the end of No Time to Die, um, which I'll, be, I'll, I'll actually be fine with. To be honest, I'd be glad. I was going to say though, Mark, that um, if George Lucas is responsible <laughs> for the Bond films, then it, it would be Boris right now. Oh God, no, don't! But I mean, there was a massive <laughs> Janet Brown and Dennis. Uh, yeah. his name um, not not Dennis uh, John Wells doing Dennis they yeah. were massive names they would sell out the West End and the regional theatre right. tours not that that's a reason to be put in a bomb film but it is such a strange beat maybe it's because you know first female prime minister in the, in the Bond era perhaps it's that um, but I just I don't know could you imagine Michael Sheen turning up doing Tony Blair it's, no right. <laughs> No, and in fact, you know, to be honest, looking back all these years later, that's probably why they should avoid super overt, absolutely uh, timely references. Yeah. But like I said, at the time, I was okay with it. And like, yeah, they probably shouldn't have gone that way. But at no, the not, time, yeah. I, I was ready for a laugh after all the tense mountain climbing stuff. Well, it's so. like the millennium bug gag in World Is Not Enough. That was relevant yes. for about two and a half weeks. I'm like, oh, no, no, don't do that because it's not going to age well. Yeah. All right. So we're, we're, we're in the end titles now. So I, this is what I was going to say later. So this movie got a uh, Oscar nod, a nomination for the song. And the decision was made to give Albert R. Broccoli the uh, Irving Thalberg Award, which is a Lifetime Achievement Award for movie producers. So as a result, the 1982 Oscar show was, I would say, still the most Bond-oriented Oscar telecast. So at the beginning of the 
beginning of the telecast, you know, there's a thing at the beginning where it shows all the famous people coming in to see the Oscar show. And you see Roger Moore and the announcer says, and here's Roger Moore, perhaps the most handsome man alive. He's here tonight to give a special award. And then you, you know, it goes on. And then, you know, so they had this incredibly elaborate, some would say cheesy, uh, production of uh, For Your Eyes Only Song with Sheena Easton performing it. And But what was odd about it, well, there were a number of things odd about it, but the main thing that was odd about it was, so here was a movie that had this big down-to-earth, Bond right. goes back down-to-earth thing, and they do a Moonraker-themed production. Right. <laughs> and and also, Bill Conti, who scored For Your Eyes Only, was the musical director for this for this particular uh, edition of the Oscars telecast. So they work in bits of his, um, his score into the performance. And so like she sings a song and there's this dancer who's made up to look like uh, Roger Moore Bond. And you have Richard Keel as Jaws and you have Harold Cicada as Odd Jaws. Yeah. In one of his, probably one of his last public appearances because he died later that year. And, uh, and he, you know, and I, I know some people said that's Harold Scott. I said, yeah, he lost a lot of weight. He was suffering from cancer at the time, but he, you know, went in and did this. And, um, so is this, you know, and there were like really bad laser (laughs) special effects in this thing. And the set where they're doing the dance number looks like Drax's space station. It was like I never yeah, figured it, that out. Why they it looks, why they it looks did like that. that? It looked like that design for a Bond th- exhibit at Universal. Yeah, the one that uh, yeah. oh, Ralph McQuarrie was involved with. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. But 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 the highlight, you know, for Bond fans, at least for me, was when Broccoli himself got that Thalberg Award. Mm. Roger Moore came out. He did a he did a presentation. First, he did the presentation. Then they showed a bunch of Bond clips, and then Broccoli comes out, and he gave an incredibly gracious speech. He gave shout-outs to both Irving Allen and and Harry Saltzman, two former partners he had had a lot of disagreements with over the years, but he made a point to mention them, which I, I thought was really great. It was a it was a short but gracious speech, and uh, yeah, no. So as a result, this movie very much helped set up that. 82 uh, Oscars telecast. And I still think it's, you know, I, I think it's great. And you can see most of that on YouTube in a couple different bits. Yeah. There's a great one also with uh, Aretha Franklin doing um, Nobody Does It Better, where her cleavage nearly runs away with her and she's bouncing around. And there's all these lithe Broadway dancers with gold uh, hoops. And uh, it's, but it's, but you're right, Bill, that the Fury's only one is just kind of out there it's like being trapped in a universal studio tour bomb title sequence (laughs) but and 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 just real quick about that Thalberg award essentially broccoli won that award thanks to 12 films the 12 bond films up to that point yes he had produced a lot of movies before that but he did not get that award for uh cockle shell heroes or or tank force slash no time to die he got it for the bond films so Mm. So going around the houses, um, for yours only. That for me, for yours only, is, as a kid, bored the pants off me. That movie, and it was not a favorite of mine. Um, as I've got older, I like it better. And I actually, 
saw it on the big screen where during the Roger Memorial kind of screenings, I actually saw it in Burbank and um, the audience there given, you know, everybody works in the industry was pretty much as, you know, who the audience was all industry folks. Mm. The spy love me kind of washed over them. Um, and um, I just judging on the audience reaction, they all appreciate Fiora is only way better. That was the double bill. Mm. And I've come to that kind of, position myself i don't think there is even much of a pl- story to spoil of me compared to fioris only i probably what i was yeah. about to say one reason for that i suspect is for your eyes only is the closest thing to a craig film which most of those people that james saw mm-hmm. the movie with had, you know had any uh experience with uh, that's not to say it's like a craig film at all but it's the closest of the roger moore films to that um Again, when I saw it, by that point, I'd read the novels and I knew how the movies had deviated from the novels. And so I very much appreciated seeing it the first time uh, about how it took things back to Fleming. I mean, when the, when a Bond film comes out, oh, we, you know, we always go back to Fleming. This was the case. That was really true. I've always liked Rise Only. I, I loved it as a kid. I think it was probably the last Roger Moore Bond I saw. Um, uh, and I, I just, I like its simplicity even now. And it's all, you know, it sounds horribly cliche written to say, but it has an autumnal quality to it. It's, it's not pretending Roger Moore is 38 still, um, mm-hmm. which, and I, I, I love all the Fleming. I love all the spiness. I, I love, it's a real early eighties British movie as well. I, you know, it's obsessed with the Olympics like Long Good Friday was. It's, it's obsessed with the same sort of similar things that uh, where who's, where, uh, uh, who dares wins uh, is, you know, uh, based upon, especially with the Pinewood connections as well. Um, now, I've always had. I I don't think there's personally. I don't think there's much wrong with Furiosonia. It does often get ignored at the uh, the Bond party, but that's fine. I'll be talking with it in a corner, eating pistachio nuts and drinking uh, <laughs> Greek Greek. Uh, what is that? Uzo. I forgot my own line. There was the uh, Uzo. That's it. Yeah, Uzo. I guess I'm going to be a bit of a dissenting voice here then, because it's it's never been a favourite of mine and it still isn't really. Uh, watching it through just now, I think so much of it just feels economical. I, I, mm. I just don't feel it. I'm just not excited. I'm not like the action sequences are kind of well put together. They're fi- finely edited. It It's all all right. But there is just a flatness to it. And I don't know if it's the lighting or the film stock or even just the restoration that we're watching, uh, uh, the Blu-ray transfer that I watched tonight, um, whether it just gives it that kind of quality. But it just feels so low grade in so many ways. And while I think Roger is really good and there are really great moments here and there, um, I think the sequence where um, Bond and Molina are being dragged along behind the boat, that is really a, a really great sequence and certainly my favourite sequence in the film. But uh, there's just so much. I think Molina's sort of character arc thing is really botched and clunky. It feels like the screenplay just went through so many revisions and it just kind of survived through to the shooting script. Um, yeah, I'm not a big fan. I, I always feel it's got a real tight script. I mean, I, Michael Wilson doesn't 
you know, different interpretations, uh, and I'm never quite sure what he did, Mayborn did in the, the 80s particularly, but Michael Wilson kind of gets the economy of a Bond film. He gets the, we need the A, B, and C, and Mayborn did as well. You know, we've got to raise that balloon, and that's that's the uh, that's the trick. And I, 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 I never... I, I, I all disagree with you, Calvin, just but <laughs> for tonight's eyes only, though. Yes. My, oh, my, no, no. My, my one problem with it is actually um, Carol Bouquet. Oh. Now, I, don't, I haven't seen her in anything else, really, that I can remember. I, is she just generally miserable? I mean, that's how yeah. I kind of feel that she comes across. And I think recast that with somebody else, I think it would change the energy of the film. Well, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think her performance is fine. Like, doing what, she, like, dealing with death of her parents and all that kind of stuff. I think, no, to be honest, I think how. Like, having a party or anything. I just think she <laughs> just looks dead inside. Oh, she no. Yeah, no. I, well, I don't know. It's, I think. I, I get the A to B to C plot wise fine you've you know yeah it does go A to B to C but because they make such a pronounced point of her in that scene with her and Bond in the hotel room um, she's talking about Electra revenge all this kind of stuff they're really putting a pin in the whole right character story this is what we're doing in this one we haven't done it for a little while so here's what we're going for and then it's just so botched um and hypocritical of bond um i I think she's actually quite great in this i really like her in this i just wish that the elements around her were better real quick thought um go ahead lisa i'm sorry i was gonna say i actually agree with calvin um this is not a film, this is not one of my go-to Bond films. And it's interesting because I actually don't have too many critiques of it. I think everything is fairly well done and, and succinct. And it's interesting because even though this was my choice, I actually like the other two more films that we had on deck, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun and Octopussy a lot more. And I also have a lot more problems with those two films. They certainly... Mm-hmm increase my passion levels of the things that I really like about them and the things that I find really problematic about them, especially the treatment and representation of women in The Man with the Golden Gun. And also I have issues with Bond and some of the stuff that goes on in India um, and his, you know, utilization of, of, of places, spaces and resources. But those films really bring out feelings in me, a spectrum of feelings as I'm watching them and I find them more visually interesting, a lot more excite, exciting in terms of uh, the pace, the tone, uh, the comedy, the wit, uh, the villains in them. There's just a lot more in this film, in those films that, you know, gets my pulse racing, whether it's a good racing or a bad racing. I feel more in those films, whereas with this film, I don't necessarily feel too too much i don't feel good i don't feel bad i don't have critiques like things were done really poorly i just think that it's it's a solid film but maybe that's the reason why it doesn't get recognized is because it's just it's it's one note for me um, whereas the other films just have a lot more going on visually spatially narratively and of course my reaction to those things so maybe that's a combination of what people have said um mm. what all of you mm-hmm. have said can I jump in with two thoughts? One, I think one reason why, and I'll admit this as one of the old farts who had actually read the novels before the films. I'm sorry. I had seen the films first, and but I caught up on the novels. Um, seeing all this Fleming content, which we had not gotten in a while. Mm-hmm. I, think that's, I think that's one reason why some fans, older fans, are more enthusiastic about this movie 
as we said before, of the Roger Moore films, this has the most Fleming I, content. I think I, I think you can count me in those, yeah. Um, yeah. Because I, 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 when I saw it on first release, I, I did enjoy it, particularly after Moonraker, which uh, I, I just, it, it was the first Bond film I, I saw that really disappointed me. Sorry, Calvin. And, <laughs> That's um, fine. <laughs> but uh, then we, we went went to uh, for your eyes only in, it, in its back to basics in, in very many ways and but that there's an awful lot of Fleming in there um, and because I consider myself primarily a fan of the books much more than the films uh, it, whenever whenever I, I see Fleming in the films I, I really appreciate it so you know it, and uh, I, I, I do get what uh, other people have said about you know it, it being uh, you know it, it's it's a, you know, basically a, a competent film, but um, and and some sometimes when I watch it, I, I really like it, and sometimes it, it kind of bores me. So I, I think you, I think I need to be in the right mood to see it, and you know I, I guess that happens with a lot of films though. But uh, um, this viewing, I did enjoy. I just also wanted to add. I suspect suspect this is a speculation on my part i do wonder having a 30-year difference between the bond actor and lead bond woman i wonder if that influenced the decision to have maude adams be octopussy in the next film oh without a doubt yeah um because you know 30 years that's kind of noticeable but uh and the chemistry as well i just i just want to underline what david said about the fleming thing that bond bond needs to hark back to fleming on obviously all the time but but every now and then it's like two pressure valves one is bond does sometimes have to go big and grandiose and do its moonrakers or its die another days or its spy who loved me but also we we need the casino royales and you know the yin and the yang is that we will go as big as we do with the only twice but we will ping it back to fleming and both of those sides of that sort of broccoli or bond coin are are just as crucial to the whole timeline and evolution of Bond on screen. Um, and I, 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 that's partly why I, I do think Fury's Only is a, is a really strong little you know, breathing space of a Bond movie. And then maybe Octopussy takes that forward and goes a little bit bigger. And then we, we go silly and even bigger in Future Kill. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm, I will mentally defend the Fury's Only, but then I love, I love Moonraker. I'm, I'm definitely team Calvin with Moonraker. <laughs> also, also bear in mind, okay, For Your Eyes Only is the product of a first-time film director. Yes, he had done second unit. Yes, he had been the film editor. But, like, no, he had not been the lead director on a film until this movie. And then he did four more. But So, as a debut, that's something to keep in mind. And then you can argue, you can hmm. see how, as, 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 as Mark brought up, like, you can see how he builds on it and he builds on sort of the solid foundation, the experience, his techniques and so on. And so you can probably, um, if we wanted to chart the, the evolution of him as a Bond film director. Mm. Mm. Yeah. He still doesn't get enough credit, John Glenn. I know know, the films eighties is not allegedly Bond's best uh, decade. I have yet to be uh, proven why, but um, I, I, when I've met John Glenn, he's so deeply proud of what he did. And he, 
you know, I mean, his favorite film changes every time you ask him. I will say that. Um, but mm-hmm. he's deeply, and he, he got the mechanics of Bond. He got the, the actual structural components of Bond. He may not be a Sam Mendes. He may not be a, uh, you know, well, Kerry Fukunaga, maybe. He, he doesn't perhaps have that, that, uh, sense of beautiful uh, cinema as craft but he has cinema as as product and i think that is not ever ever to be underestimated and i think that might be part of my problem with for eyes only because i'm fine with my bond films either being you know your sam mendes we want to look at the characters the character is going to be driving this story it's arcs it's all that kind of stuff and equally i'm fine with your moonrakers your you know, yes. uh, Spy Who Loved Me is where it is more plot-driven, whatever, and yet Fiore's only tries to do a bit of both and it just kind of falls flat. Maybe, yes. <laughs> <laughs> my opinion. Calvin, if you want to leave in the morning, take my car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So, Lisa, you pick this one. So, um, do you want to conclude... Does it change your opinion hearing everybody else chat about it? Um, I mean, I always find these podcasts very interesting because we're bringing in various different perspectives, bodies of knowledge, and of course, tastes. And I think that it's great that we can have a podcast like this where we don't actually have to agree with the mm. overall sentiment. Um, and, and I like that fact that we're still entitled to our ideas, our opinions, but we can also share and grow. Has this changed my idea and opinion of For Your Eyes Only? Not necessarily. I always thought it was just a solid film and I still think it's a solid film. Is it something I'm going to pop in the next time? I'm like, oh my goodness, I need Bond in my life. Probably not. Um, But I also know a lot of people in terms of my watch alongs or when we're talking about doing podcasts, they really wanted us to do a podcast on this because it Mm -hmm. does resonate well with people. Bond fans, you know, they do hold on to this film and they want to hear us talk about this film. So I'm glad that we were able to do this for uh, those who are listening and hopefully we can do this for another fan favorite next week. Yeah. I was thinking Fiora's only is a good kind of bond fan sniff test. It's like, if you can (laughs) hold a discussion about this film, then you're a bond fan. Hmm. Cause I think it's under the radar of the, um, what'd you call it? Mark the, office party bond uh, yes <laughs> yeah yeah it's not this it's, is one that's like a dark, this is a blind spot for those it's people it's not Sheena East hmm. that the academy awards doing the song <laughs> yeah it's yeah you're right yeah, yeah you mean the, the, uh, there's I'm more a, annoyance to it i i feel you, you mean that the, you mean the um i'm a huge fan of bond i've seen nearly all of them <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> yes <laughs> almost yeah almost all of them there were books? Yeah, those people. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, um, Lisa, you won. So, you know the new rules. We make them up last week. So, you won. So, um, we only get four noms. So, you have to take a back seat on this one, unfortunately. Give I'm somebody happy else to do a chance. That. So, can, um, I, can I go Bill, first? Bill, do you yes. want to go first and nominate Goldfinger? <laughs> yes, because I, I I asked my Twitter followers, I said, I want to nominate a Connery. What do you want to do? And with 52% of the vote, went, it was Goldfinger, which like my preference would have been Thunderball, but I'm going to uh, go with the vote. I'll nominate uh, Goldfinger. All right. I love how like this vote has now got like another level of voting <laughs> behind it. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I like last, you know, it's like I could tell this was going to win, but like in the last 24 hours, I decided to like, 
put it in the Connery fans' faces because All the right. ones that say Connery is the greatest ever and blah, blah, blah. Well, then vote. You know, get it, you know, get with it, guys. So I, All right. I nominate Goldfinger. So, David, what do you want to nominate that could beat Goldfinger? Okay, well, I didn't put this to my Twitter followers, but I decided prior to this podcast what I was going to go for, and is it is Thunderball. All right. Oh, we're going to split the vote, David. No. <laughs> I, can see the ta- I can see the tactics now. Um, Calvin? Uh, I'm going to capitalize on this splitting of the vote, and I'm going to go for Goldeneye. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that was a split second decision just now. I was going to champion the world's not enough, but no, let's let's go for Goldeneye. I can I can see Goldfinger getting beat now. Um, Mark, as our honorary newbie, um, uh, uh, no, time to die. no time to die. No time to die. It's it, no. It suddenly dawned on me that I I have a feeling that the 007 Twitter account might actually put on this day in history. No Time to Die was meant to come out. Um, but I, no, I'll, I'll stay true to form and say View to Kill, just because I like to Good shake man. it up. Good yeah. man. Good man. Good man. All right. I think that does it for this week, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Stay safe, everybody. See you next week. For your eyes only can see.